Hello, everybody. This is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend, my business partner, uh, the dear, the wonderful, uh, Mr. Jason Three Names, Jason Johnston Yellen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I said that just as you're taking a sip of your whiskey. Mm-hmm. <sighs> How are you? How are you, Jason? I'm all right, thank you. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did I ask the question at a wrong thing. time? What's going on? Here, here's here's the thing. Here's okay. the thing. Yeah. Since we're among friends, okay. You know how you know how tra- you and I talk about this all the time. Traditionally, mm-hmm. whiskey would have an OND in October, November, December. Correct. And then whiskey started having an OND JFM, mm-hmm. right? And so January, February, March were just you know a little less busy, but still. Pretty intense. Mm-hmm. And then you would start looking forward to the spring of the year and then certainly the summer where things would really calm down and you could really catch your breath. You could really just tidy oh, yeah. up some things. Yeah, I look forward to that every year. Exactly. <laughs> and that's, that's why my answer <laughs> to your question was a little bit, ho-hum, oh well, it's just really busy all the time and and even though july is a different kind of busy to the the darker months the wetter months the colder months uh-huh. i know that as busy as i am now i'll be even more busy in another three months four months five months six months uh, continue well yeah you know just just before we started recording you and i were going over the list of all of the stuff in the queue to be bottled, whether it's for the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, for both retail and online, and for the rest of the world. And, and it's, it's like over 20 casks all together uh, of stuff needing to be bottled. And, and it is an interesting thing because on top of that, you know, normal whiskey life has, has changed and, and it's busier. But, but it is interesting to still be in that mode of, of trying to think six months ahead of time. But we're a bit behind, we're a bit behind the eight ball here, right? Because COVID slowed up things in unusual and varying ways. And we're talking about bottling all the stuff for the OND, like you'd mentioned, October, November, December. But we're really late. If we're thinking about it properly, we're really late to be doing all that. Correct. And, uh, <laughs> Which is why my answer is my answer. So, but as you're as you're mentioning, there, looking forward to to other things coming in. We have a second collaboration with the Water of Life film people, Greg mm-hmm. Swartz, who was a recent episode for us. Mm-hmm. And today, my own advance sample of the the Stones of Stenness bottling came in. And as you mentioned, you asked me the question just as I was taking a sip of whiskey. I was taking my very first sip of the bottled Stones of Stenness 17-year-old that that was bottled for the, the Water of Life film collaboration. And was it the neck pour? I mean, I imagine you just dumped that down the sink because that's apparently what it, you're meant it, to do. It's, it's controversial, isn't it? It is controversial. I am currently consuming the neck pour, and I'm and I'm trying to decide whether or not I should have done that. Uh, 
I will also say this. I, I did cheat a little bit. This came in off a UPS truck this morning. Yeah. It came in came in around about noon, maybe, just before noon. And so the day hadn't quite got as hot as it will get. And I let it sit in my office for about an hour before I popped the cork on it. Mm-hmm. And as I feel it now, I think it's come back down to room temperature. But as we say to even other nation members are in the US here, when those bottles are coming in, they're coming off the UPS truck. Like give them twenty four hours in your house. Just let them let them settle again. Um, those those trucks can be cruel mistresses, and 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 some people have said to us, well, you know, do you do you ship seasonally? Should you ship seasonally? Who are we making happy if we ship seasonally? Yeah, no, no, I I agree with you. I think I think that advice is well advised that that's that that's good advice uh the neck pour is uh complete hogwash um just just <laughs> pour the dram let it let it sit in your glass for 10 15 minutes see what happens drink it slowly let it evolve uh it's not bad whiskey exact, it's just that's exactly you know partly i wanted to have this this first pour with the the good listeners of, of mm-hmm. the One Nation Under Whiskey podcast, but also to, to have it here with you. I know your advanced sample hasn't come in just yet. No. I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Thankfully, it's nothing to do with me, so it's uh, so I feel okay on that front. I have I have been letting this sit and breathe. The, the other part to add was selling this at one per person, US Nation members only, sold out in 90 minutes. Yeah. And so, you know, if that had been allowed multiple bottles, it would have gone a lot faster than that. But I feel like an hour and a half. If you, unless something has really gone horribly wrong with your day, an hour and a half is a window to get a bottle. Isn't it interesting that that, that feels like the comfortable number? Like you've, you've had your time. You've had your 90 minutes. You know, when earlier on when we started the company, we were like, look, You've had your nine months. You've had your nine months to place an order. <laughs> you've, you've, you've had your 22 months, right? Our Cole Holman, 22 months. Couldn't give it away. Uh, uh, but, 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 I, but I think that is good, right? An hour and a half, thankfully, appeased most. Of course, you can never please all, but we, we do our best to appease most. And there is a, a nation member slash podcast listener. I won't bring up his name because I think he shared this story sort of just between us, but you know, he, his wife and his kid were traveling in an airport and, you know, Mm. trying to get through security with the child seat and like all this stuff. And he was, he was just assumed he was going to miss it. And then here he was an hour and 15 minutes in and he was still able to get a bottle and he just assumed the worst, which you get right. Because the bottlings, the online bottlings tend to sell out, fairly immediately so yeah you even someone who is negotiating a baby and car seats in the tsa and masks and all this <laughs> stuff he was able to get his bottle so that that was that was very good the, the the final part i'll add to this is we've been we've been shipping this incredibly quickly our, our shipper and the team have done remarkable work on getting this out and and i I think those on the East Coast should be starting to see the bottles real soon as well. Mm -hmm. And so now the next step for us is nailing down 
the viewing date mm-hmm. and time. Because as a reminder, every single person who bought a bottle of this also received a ticket to the viewing of the Water of Life film with panel afterwards. And so we will say more about that, probably over email, we'll discuss it in the podcast because we can't help ourselves, (laughs) but we will be emailing all purchasers with a date, with a time, and more information about the panel once that gets all firmed up. If the panel shapes up the way it's looking to shape up, it's going to be a hell of a time. There's, there's no doubt Agreed. about it. Yeah. So, Jason, uh, let's let's shift gears a little bit here. Uh, this is, you know, today's interview is one of those rarer instances where one of us went off to interview someone solo-like. And very so, rare, right? Very rare, especially these days. And and so you you interviewed uh, Bill Thomas, Jack Rose Dining Saloon. And what do you want to what do you want to let the listeners know about before before we get into this interview? Which I want to talk about it a, a little bit, not too much, but a little bit. But I'm curious of what your goal was when setting up this interview. I can answer that very easily for you. Yeah. And I I might echo this in the recording with Bill, but but I wanted take a moment to to really bring light to it. Bill Thomas is an incredibly busy guy. <laughs> and when I go through to DC and I I have an appointment, I have a time to meet with him, sometimes I'll taste him on some things if the opportunity arises, sometimes I'll just be discussing things with him. Mm-hmm. I always feel I'm keeping him from his next thing. And and that's not because Bill Thomas is an arrogant guy who looks at his watch and is halfway out the door when he's talking to you. Mm -hmm. It's because I know how busy he is and I know how many projects he has. And a very special memory for me was a few years ago, I was in DC, I was doing a, a tasting, a pouring, an event, and I stayed at Bill's house the the evening of that pour. Yeah. And he and I sat on his rooftop and we popped some corks <laughs> and we just sat and we talked whiskey. And I didn't have anywhere to be. He didn't have anywhere to be. Yeah. I did feel like I was keeping him from his bed at some point because I know he doesn't <laughs> sleep very much. Um, but we just sat there and I started to get a sense of, of who he is mm-hmm. and what he's about. And... I was actually up early the next morning. I was out his house before anybody in the house was awake. I had a plane to go catch. Oh, and so okay. <laughs> and so I never even got to say bye to him in the morning. And it, and it really did feel like, huh, did last night happen on the rooftop, having the chat? You know, it's, yeah. it, 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 and you know, you know, we'd sometimes use this word in whiskey circles where it, it really was magical, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And ever since then, you and I have wanted to get him off the, on the podcast. Mm-hmm. But selfishly, I've wanted to just sit down with him and have a conversation where I didn't feel like he had another thing to be at, I had another thing to be at. It was just sitting down for the sake of the podcast. Yeah. And so when I had a chance 
just as we're starting to come out of COVID, just as we're getting vaccinated, as we're able to sit there, we and I, I definitely say this in the recording, we were unmasked, but the table is about six feet across because <laughs> uh, we were yeah. sitting in a booth. <clears throat> and so we were socially distanced without planning to be socially distanced. It's just the design and the shape of the booth that we were sitting in. Sure. But it felt like the beginning of a return to normal times mm -hmm. as we discussed all of the abnormal times he's gone through, the bar has gone through, his staff has gone through, his business partner has gone through. Mm -hmm. We discussed a time that was frightening, that he worked his tail off sure. to survive, but to also support his staff during that. Yeah. And then we, you know, we, we, we discussed the history of Bill Thomas and Jack Rose. And then we talked COVID and then we talked the whiskey scene. And then we talked his own buying of casks. And, and by the end of it, we started talking about a part two, right? <laughs> because even sitting there for an hour, an hour and a half, we didn't cover the things that we'd hoped to cover. And even some of the questions that I, I was asking him were things that, he is starting to work on things that he's starting to look at. How will it impact the business? One of the things that's of huge interest to me and I think will have huge impact for the industry mm -hmm. is we've had establishments working on one month turnaround and we've had them have hiring practices where okay, I, I want to bring in good people, but how do we keep good people? How do we offer them wages? How do we offer them sick leave? Yeah. Nobody's hired with <laughs> sick leave, yeah. right? Nobody's protected in this industry. And I started asking Bill about what do you think the future will look like and how will you put practices in place? And that's a huge philosophical question sure is, yeah. for the entire industry where Bill Thomas is only one person among many hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands who are trying to answer that question. So in setting up a part two, there's going to be follow-up. There's going to be a response to, what did I start asking you in that part one? that we can revisit in part two as well. Yeah, well, let me let me say just a few things here before we hand it over to, to, to you and Bill. Yeah, please. Um, I'm not going to talk specifically, but I'm going to wait. I have some comments I want to make, but I'm going to wait until after we come out of the interview. But, but what I liked about this was, you know, we, we've done a bar episode before, but it was where we had a few minutes from Mike Miller at Delilah's and a few minutes with Aaron Zacharias from Fountainhead, right? Where this was the first time you did a deep dive with an industry person who is responsible for shaping people's palates. And, and, you know, two, three years ago when we did the other bar episode, I thought it was a great episode and I thought it did exactly what we wanted to do. But after listening to this one, I realized that episode didn't do nearly what we wanted to do because there's so much to learn. There's so much to glean from these conversations from these wonderful people. 
Bill Rose with Jack with uh, sorry Bill Thomas with Jack <laughs> Rose, you know Mike Miller with Delilah's Mike at Travel Bar, right? Uh, the folks at Twisted Spoke in in Chicago and and Christopher Grombeck, Christopher Grombeck at Barrel Thief, and and we can go on and on. Tom, Tommy Tardy at Flatiron Room, right? You can go on and on and on. And I think that these are really important conversations to be having and to be sharing with people. And I wouldn't say we've avoided it in the past. We surely have not avoided it in the past, but it was never a route that we took. And after hearing this conversation, it's after you've taken that left turn, I just want to follow that road and I want to be interviewing more people who are on the front lines, especially, you know, hearing about what were the front lines like during COVID? What are the front lines going to look like coming out of COVID? You know, and I think there's going to be some really important conversations to be had. So I have other comments I want to make, but I I just, I just want to thank you for really championing uh, this, this conversation with Bill and bringing it to our listeners because... It's a special conversation. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. It was, a, it was a pleasure conducting it. One of the things for me is, on one hand, you look at Bill Thomas and you've got a guy who is is a, is a fellow whiskey lover like mm. us, and he's making some selections both on the bottles that he brings in, but also some of the cast picks that he's been doing during COVID. He's pivoted to running a retail store, yeah. right? Where people come in off the street and buy bottles from him. At the same time, he's tried to support his staff. He's a business owner. Mm-hmm. He's got people in his life mm-hmm. who he supports as much as he possibly can. That's that's just simply a business owner through and through. That has nothing to do with whiskey. That's just the category in which he has his business. Yeah, And so he's wearing so many different hats that I think it's easy to think, oh, you just have a whiskey chat with Bill Thomas. Well, you can, but if you also start to peel away the layers of the onion and you have a business conversation with Bill Thomas, boy, is that a completely different conversation. And that's true of those other people you named as well, where Mike, you know, I'm a local bar. What do you do when you're your locals can't come out to support you. Christopher Grombeck up in Seattle, Washington passed legislation, temporary legislation, where he could open his own retail store within his bar. Mm-hmm. How does that affect his relationship with his customers, with his mm-hmm. staff? Mm-hmm. Like there, there are so many questions. And then just hospitality industry writ large has been operating on minimal margins for so very long. You've got so many staff who operate on tips, who, who live on tips, who have yeah. no health insurance, yeah. right? It, it takes this global pandemic to say, we knew the industry shouldn't be running like that, but how do we really now make wholesale changes so that the industry doesn't run like yeah. that? And then what does that mean? You know, people talk about this with, with pricing. What does that mean? Nobody walks into a bar, nobody walks into a retail store and says, that bottle's too cheap. That meal's too cheap. (laughs) Everybody walks in and says, I wish that was a little bit cheaper, right? Uh 
it it already wasn't supporting the industry at the price it was at. And now we're going to look for it to be, you know, the price is probably going to go up a bit to support people in the way people should be supported. What does that mean? What's the knock-on effect of that? It becomes huge and it becomes societal very quickly. Those are these conversations that only the first domino has been pushed over in this conversation with Bill. Yeah. And there's going to be a hundred more dominoes to discuss. And and that's why I said, we've taken this left turn. I want to follow it. This is a, it's an ever evolving story with a multitude of voices sharing their own experiences that just help paint this larger picture. So, so I'm excited for that, but more importantly, at least more immediately, I should say, uh, I'm excited for this conversation uh, between you and Bill. So let's hand it over to you guys, and we'll meet everybody uh, on the back end. Bill, I've wanted to do this for a long, long time. You're not an easy man to get hold of, even though you just simply live in D.C. and operate Jack Rose Dining Saloon. What keeps you so busy, man? Uh, trying to keep this place afloat for the last year and a half, and before that, keep it stocked. So I don't know, just, just hustling, I guess. <laughs> it, it's funny, when somebody asks me, could you give me one word that summarizes Bill Thomas? <laughs> hustling would be the absolute word that would come to mind. That's what my doormat says. That's not my house, actually. <laughs> it doesn't really? Yeah, it says hustle. <laughs> and then the quote from Abraham Lincoln is over the fireplace. <laughs> What's that one? That's... Uh, uh, good things come to those who wait, but only those things left by those who hustle. <laughs> yeah. Man, you really are the genuine article. <laughs> I like it. So, so obviously, Jack Rose came into your life. I think your numbers are similar to our numbers. You're about 10 years in with Jack Rose yeah, at this just, point? Yeah, just over, yeah. And so I, I had the pleasure of your company at your house one night, and we drank through a lot of tasty, tasty treats. And I got to you'll find out a bit more about you. You are a D.C. guy. Am I right in saying that? Or you at least came to D.C. as a younger fellow? Well, uh, my parents moved out when I was born. Um, but my family's been here, opened the first bar here in 1885. Right. And so been around a long time, but we ended up, uh, I ended up growing up just outside in PG County. Okay. And then moved back or moved into the city when I was in my early 20s. Okay. I believe. Yeah. What did that look like? Back then? Yeah. It was pretty amazing because the city was <laughs> wide open. Uh, just a different different area. I mean, we had been coming to D.C. I mean, we couldn't... As soon as we got out of school, we'd jump in our car and get here. Okay. And just, you know, get into whatever trouble we could, which was easy in the 80s because D.C. was just falling apart. Murder capital of... Murder capital, yeah. Of the U.S. at that point? And, and, of the U.S., but per capita, it was something crazy. I mean, we were just... Uh, there was so much trouble and there was such no oversight and the drinking age was 18. Oh, okay. You know, so it was nothing to see bars filled with 15 year olds, you (laughs) know, and, uh, Uh everybody had fake IDs and nobody really checked and it was the wild, wild west back then. So. And the basketball uh, team was called the bullets. The basketball team was called the bullets. Um, what else was, I mean, I mean, we would drive home past the white house every night, which in the old days when it was open and, we just, the, mach- 
just shit hanging out of the car and people. I, I how we never gotten <laughs> trouble or or, or or got or worse. It, it's amazing, you know. We got thrown out of thrown out of a lot of clubs, but not okay, you know, for being fifteen and <laughs> being up to no good. So, uh, and and so at that point, did you think your future? Was in D.C.? Did you think this oh, yeah. was going to be a time period and then you'd move elsewhere? Yeah, I only had three goals as a, as a kid, and that was um, the first one was just to live in D.C. That was goal mm. number one. That's the only thing I wanted to do was live in, in D.C. And the, the second one was to have a great house, and the third one was to make a million bucks. And we all know that a million dollars isn't anything anymore. <laughs> that's, like, that's like 10 <laughs> bottles of the right whiskey. So um, I've got to set my goals a lot higher. If I'm gonna, I, I was just watching a finance show last night, and it says the average person has to save a million dollars in the bank for retirement because yes. we're living so long. And I was like, so a yes. million dollars is just for you to live a middle-class existence which is baffling to me because growing up a million dollars seems so unattainable. Like you're a made man for life yeah, at that point. Yeah, at that point you're just like, you know, buying your way out of trouble <laughs> and instead of begging your way out of trouble. <laughs> so, so when you and I were talking at your house, you talked about you and your brother doing video stores. Yes. And I thought that was absolutely captivating that you had the wherewithal to see that market in that time period. How old were you guys when you set up? Oh, no, no. That was, my, well, my dad oh, was okay. a major appliance salesman for JCPenney's. Okay. Uh, just a really, talk about a hustle. That guy was a salesman. It was amazing. And he saw that whole video craze coming. So when ah, we were, gotcha. when we were, I was 10, Rich was 12, uh, dad opened the first store. There was this tiny little video store and it was just like, took off like a rocket. And uh, so we ended up, shit, by the time I was, I don't know, in our, when we were, when I was 15 years and we were running the company, dad was, you know, <laughs> he was back to doing his old stuff, which we can't talk about, but he had made enough money to, to do what he wanted to do. And Rich and I were in the company and by 90, 94 was a record year. 95, business fell off 35%. We knew it was the end. We were like, the internet had just taken over. Uh, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't like Blockbuster or anything like that. We actually, our last store, we, we actually opened up against them. We moved in on them, <laughs> opened up like a, a store, like a third of the bigger than them. We were pretty cocky. And uh, we, that, that store was the very last store that actually closed. But we, um, we were, uh, by the end of 95, Rich and I knew that it was over. We had to get out. And we were like looking at each other, like, what do you want to do? And we looked at everything and we were like, we should get back into the bar business. And uh, that's what we did. So I started working on a bar by the... Uh, end of 96, I was already like trying to get stuff going. And okay. we had a location that we worked on for over a year that fell through after I had gotten architect's plans, done everything, but I just had a falling out with the landlord. He was being shady. Mm -hmm. So I walked, I walked out of that meeting, went home, looked at my parents, uh, or I went to their house and I was like, you know what? I need some time. I'm, I'm out. This, this took a year plus called my ex-girlfriend in Germany. I was in Germany in less than 24 hours. And I in the middle of winter with a backpack, with a book on backpa back, backpacking Europe in the winter, <laughs> you know, and uh, that was it. So I was in, I was in Hamburg and we were just partying and stuff like that. And then, then I, then she goes, she took, um, she goes, uh, I was like, let's go somewhere. Let's go to like Paris or something. So we, she was like, okay, I'll ask for time off from her job. So she asked for time off. We booked Paris. We were sitting in a bar in Germany 
And I was just like feeling like the complete loser because I just spent a year and a half working on this bar and it fell through. Sure, sure. And I looked at her and I was like, I'm flying home in the morning. She's like, uh, what about Paris? And I gave her all the money that I had on me, which was like, I had a lot. I had, I guess, I don't know, it was like 3,000 bucks or whatever. I, I put it on the counter. I was like, take whoever you want. And I jumped on a plane and flew, <laughs> and flew immediately back. And, and we, were, we were negotiating on bars within 90 days. We were back in the game. And so how long? So, so you flew to Germany at 24 hours notice. Yeah. Stayed how, for a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks. And then you were and 24 you felt, hours I, notice I, you were back again. I was back. I just felt like such a loser. Had to get back. Holy moly. Yeah. <laughs> and that was it. And, and then I got us into the bar business. <laughs> During that two weeks, was there, a, was there a progression or was it you were having a blast, having a blast, having a oh. blast, and then woke up after two weeks and said, yeah, we were having what a am bl- I doing? I got to go home. We were having a blast, and it was a great time. We were hitting clubs, and you know, we were young, and, and everything was fantastic. I just literally, just it just slowly was a grind on me that like, I'd, never, I'd never taken that much time off in my life. 14 two, days was like, weeks. oh my God, what am I doing? Like, this is, I felt like, uh, I just felt like lazy. I couldn't take it. I couldn't take it. And, uh, uh, and then it was funny because once I got the bars open, I didn't take, I didn't take other than like having a, a, a day or go to the, I didn't take anything off for three years. I just, I just worked the bars as, as fast as we could and, and, uh, got it back up and operational. I mean, I just pushed. So. I'm so glad we we led this interview with you hustling. I'm so <laughs> glad because two weeks off being the longest period of time you had yeah. off is is mind boggling. Yeah, uh, we just had this the other day. I was talking to to Jess about this, where there was something on Twitter and maybe it hit wider social media, but there was essentially a, a jokey Swedish out of office message that was essentially. I'm out of the office for the next four or five months. I've gone camping with my family. Yeah. If you've got anything important, I will be back. I'll deal with it then. Yeah. And the American jokey out of office was, I've gone in for emergency surgery. Continue to send me your emails. Yes. If worse comes to worse, the surgeon will read them to me. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so, you know, for, for me growing up in Scotland, my dad, who worked really hard in construction, loved his vacation time, looked forward to his vacation time, you know, thoroughly enjoyed it right. when he was on vacation yeah. and didn't have that inkling, oh, I must get back to work. Moving over to the US, I feel some of that pressure right. of, what, what do you mean vacation? Like, yeah. how long are you going away for? Yeah. Like, things are going to fall apart. Like, you got to keep working. Yep. Did you, clearly it's, it's part of your DNA, but you also witnessed that. You were saying your dad was a natural-born salesman. Yeah. Was he also busting his hump, and you saw other family busting he was, their hump? When he was at was JC, that the example? When he was at JCPenney, uh, he got one week off a year, and that's it. That's what he got. That's criminal, and, uh, man. He would take it the very last week of the summer so we could look forward to it for the other 50. And it, that, it was the same week, same vacation every time. We went to the same place, did the same things, which, which is great, I think, for him, and I see it is because when you only have seven days, you want to know exactly the best way to spend that seven days. To go on an adventure that may or may not turn out just wasn't worth it. He needed to decompress, relax for that one. That was it. It was just, so growing up with him, it just was, that was it. You just worked all the time and tried to, you know, bank as much money as you could and, you know, plan for the rainy day. Sure, absolutely. So. For the when you're talking about then coming back from Germany, doing the bar scene, 
given what we talked about DC looking like in the 80s, what did it started to look like by the mid-90s and then through the end of the 90s? There, there was, there was um, people like uh, Joe Engler, who was a restaurant bar guy here, who was doing like creative nightclubs. Everything was on the, it was on the cheap, on the, you know, shoestring, everybody. It was, it was a time of uh, really shoestring creativity, I think, across the board. Hmm. There was a few major... Uh, bars or restaurants, but there wasn't wasn't a lot. I mean, you had your favorites. I remember, you know, cell phones at that point were, you were connecting, but they were still big, and like you still haunted your regular spots, and you could count on your regular people. Mm. Now, you know, with communication, you can shift spots a million times to find your friends or move along. You know, a lot of times you went to your, especially in the early '90s, late '80s, you went to your places because that's where everybody you knew would be. Sure. Because if you sure. didn't hook up with them. Well, you missed them. You didn't see them for the rest of the night. Sure. You know? Sure. Uh, so it's it just a different kind of style of, of, of restaurants and bars. A lot of electronic, for us, a lot, a lot of electronic music. You know, music set the tone, not, not spirits, uh-huh. which is funny. Uh-huh. It is. Now there's kind of a, a, there's finally kind of that congruence or it coming together in terms of music and spirits. But back then, you picked your bar based on music, not based on drinks. You know, that was it. And were there were there pockets to go into, pockets to avoid is in that, DC? Is, yeah, is, yeah, absolutely. And, and is that still true today? Uh, I think I think there's a lot fewer pockets that you would stay away from, and there's just about the whole city's wide open from you know edge to edge. Uh, you know, our closest club when I was growing up was Tracks, which was in one of the most desolate crime areas, and I remember. Uh, it was like six weeks in a row, the car that we went, all the, the windows got smashed out. And, you know, that was week after week of uh, shootings, you know, as you wait in line to get in, drive-bys. It was, it was nuts, but it was the greatest club. <laughs> it was. It was the best. It's where the stadium is now, where, the old Nat, where Nats Park is. Oh, okay. That whole area, okay. you know, was, uh, was kind of a, you know, a neighborhood that was, had seen its better days and industrial areas that had seen its better days. And, but... It, it must have been some kind of club if you were willing to give up we car all, windows every single week for six weeks. Yeah, it was the best club. That's there's insane. still there's never been a club since or bar since. So I have to ask them. So what made it so special? What was it? It brought. It was really everyone from DC was there. I mean, every uh, cross section. It didn't okay. matter whether you were Hispanic, Asian, black, white, gay, straight. It was it was predominantly a gay club most of the week, and then it had you know kind of mixed night you know mixed nights certain nights and. There were certain areas that may were, you know, maybe a little bit more like there was a lot more of one group hanging out here, one group, but one group was, uh, one bar was kind of more progressive music. Mm-hmm. The other mm-hmm. one was more dance music. There was an outdoor volleyball. <laughs> there was like a cantina. It was just nuts. And it had thousands, I mean, it could fit as many people as you could figure. Uh-huh. And everybody seemed to be uh, harmonious. There was certain bathrooms that you would visit, maybe certain bathrooms you wouldn't. It was, it was just, it was nuts. It was just crazy. It was DC at its best. It was gritty. It was like, it was, but it was, uh, it's, it's, it's the beautiful thing about DC is, or, 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 or when everything, if no, if not one group is dominant, nobody feels out of place. Mm-hmm. And that's the mm-hmm. best thing. I remember reading mm-hmm. an article, I think in, um, it was a time magazine or something on like Mount Pleasant. And it's great when you have 25%, you know, white, 25% black, 25% Asian, 25%, and, and everyone is happy because no one feels out of place. Everybody sure. feels equal. And, it, and that was kind of tracks. I mean, it really had that feel of uh, no one was out of place, no matter what your sexual orientation was or, or ethnicity or whatever. Uh, and it was just a beautiful time, I think. 
I, I think the pressing question is, was it tracks with an X? Uh, it was tracks. Uh, no, KS. Yeah, tracks. Wow. Okay. CKS. I don't know. CKS. I, I still have. Uh, I still have because I, you know, being a history guy, I keep all this stuff. Yeah. So I still have like. <laughs> Different stuff, I think, from them. Something with their name on it and frontline passes for this and that, you know, from other bars. Just being kind of a student of restaurants and bars because I loved them so much. So. So, so with that love for tracks, did you think you were... I, I know you're talking about having the bars going and the plans and all yeah. that. Did you think you would also be a nightclub guy? Was that appealing to you? Uh, you know, I didn't... I, was, I really liked electronic music. So we, were really, so we knew that was going to be a component of it, but we didn't know what else would form around that so um, I didn't know that when I opened the first bar that I was going to be doing DJs or bands seven days a week okay. and that, that would become the entire focus it just kind of took over we got hot and it just you followed the money and the, you know that was what happened so you, you've answered the next question I was going to ask you because you said something interesting a moment ago where the bar scene you know, obviously club scene was driven by music not driven by spirits mm -hmm. In opening up a bar, did you think you would be driven by spirits, but then you went where the money was, and you ended up having the music be the driving force? Well, the, the funny thing is, we opened up with um, we opened up one floor electronic music that, and the first floor was like a, a really kind of high end bistro, and by that I mean it was really casual, but we had all Riedel stemware, we had wow. a huge wine list, we had like for for its time we had you know all the beer you know all the Belgians. You know, uh, Sam Smith's, we had, um, uh, you know, a great selection of spirits and stuff like that. We did. I mean, it was, uh, blends were still pretty much ruling the day back then, even mm -hmm. in the 90s. I mean, you still had, of course, Cuddy and Dewars and Johnny Walker Blue, Black, Red. And, uh, um, but we had all those things and we were trying to, you know, cocktails were not quite there yet. We're still making a lot of Cosmos and, you know, Appletinis and then all the shooters and all that stuff. It, it, you know, anything anyone could learn in like two days if you went to bartend. Um, but slowly over time, it started to morph. And I came up with an idea maybe two years in. We had only been open two years when I came up with the idea for bourbon. Ah, and okay. So I very quickly pivoted to an, another location that I wanted to open that would be uh, would be completely American-driven. So only, ah, yes. only American food, uh, only American music. You had to be an American artist uh -huh. uh, to be played, uh, American beer, um, American wine. And then we were thinking about what would be the ultimate umbrella. And we, when we were all sitting around, there was like five of us, and somebody, we all realized that we were all drinking bourbon. And wow. that, was, uh, that was the, somebody, and it wasn't me, somebody said, hey, what about bourbon as kind of an umbrella Americana? And that's how, and then of course we went down that rabbit hole and that was like nuts. Was, and so that started in the late 90s? No, that started in the early 2000s. Early 2000s, okay. Yeah. Did you feel like you were, it's interesting because watching the rise of food in America, modern food in America, it was all French driven and French techniques. Yep. And you, you think about Julia Childs and her yeah. getting her show on PBS yep. and James Beer before her. To, to come out in the early 2000s and champion American food, was it a bit in the wilderness at that point? Was there thinking outside of cheeseburgers and fries? Uh, well, I mean, D.C. back then, and especially early on, 70s, 80s, 90s, was a steakhouse or French. You, those right. are your two options. Right. That, that's what you, you did for the most part. Um, and then, of course, a lot of 
uh, ethnic food. There was a, a mm-hmm. lot of, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Ethiopian going on, a lot of uh, Salvadorian, that kind of thing. Um, but we did that simply because it kind of fit what we want to do spirits-driven-wise. Uh-huh. Um, it was, uh, you know, fairly, you could put it out fairly inexpensive. Um, and it just seemed to fit. In fact, I'm trying to think of who our... I can't even think of who our original chef... Oh, the, the guy who I think I had... He, he's passed away now, but the guy who wrote the original, re- the, the original menu for bourbon was my good friend who was, at the time, chef de cuisine at Citronelle. Ah. So I had him kind of consulting, okay. I think, at some point. And, uh, and just so he designed the kitchen um, just to make it easy for, like, one or two people to run. And, uh, and that was it. So we just had that kind of uh, a little bit of oversight there as a friend. And um, uh, that was it. I don't know. And it just took off. I mean, it crazy took off. We were jam-packed. It was nuts. Did you, did you find a lot of people believed in that vision? Or did you have people say, you're off your fucking head? No, 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 no. And the, the one thing we forget to, mi- to, to mention is D.C. is now a fairly international city. In the, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, mm. and going to, it was still the remnants of more of a southern city. Hmm. You know, I mean, you really, it was really more of a conservative southern kind of, and by conservative, I don't mean, right? I mean, I'm just saw people, n- no showboating, yeah. you know, that was just, it was just very low key. Um, so oh. there was still a lot of, uh, a lot of influence um, that responded to like classic American, like comfort food. I'm with you. You know, I'm with you. Yeah, so yeah, it was yeah. easy. That was a lot of you know, a lot of people that yeah, there was a you know, there was a fair amount of money still in the city. So you, especially on that side of town, you know, you're just north of Georgetown. So you had, you know, you had a lot of people that were just, you know, I, and to give you an idea, just to digress for a second, there was yeah, a, please. I bought somebody called me one day, and this is post the opening of this years later, and they go, we have a customer they would like to sell a bunch of whiskey that they had. And I go, <laughs> and they go, Bill, would you be interested? We're not interested in buying back like spirits. And I was like, sure. And, and I, they're like, we think it's a lot of prohibition stuff. And I was like, okay, right? So I, so I go, okay. And I missed her. The woman has this amazing mansion. She's in her probably 80s. Amazing mansion in Georgetown. In fact, it, I just saw it up for sale the other day for $13 million, if anybody's interested. Um, I hope she's... You know, because this was years ago. I'm sure she'd be in her 90s now. Uh-huh. Um, but I missed her because she was going to summer in Maine. Uh, that kind of wealth. Uh-huh. And then three months later, she got back passing through D.C. for two weeks before she goes to winter in the south. Right? So I catch her. Great woman. She, she, she brings me in. She takes me down to this basement, and it's just rows of prohibition in their old cellar. Just rows lined up. And I was just like... And she starts telling me, and I looked at it, and, and most of it had cooked. It had gone bad. I go, I go can, I, you know, can I ask you about, um, you know, where did this come from? You know, she goes, well, we bought the house in the 50s, the mansion, you know, house to her. Um, and she's like, uh, well, I think we brought this up from our house in North Carolina or South Carolina. And I go, okay, this makes, this makes sense. Um, and, she, and she was like, wow, well, you know, and I was telling her about all the bottles we were going through. She goes, wow, well, you really? She goes... There was this, this, nice, this <laughs> nice old family that we used to, we used to summer with or winter with uh, that, that was into whiskey. They did something in the industry. Um, you know, but I think they owned something. Nice, nice family. Just regular people. And I was like, 
I was like, do you mean the Browns? The Browns. <laughs> the, of, of like Brown Foreman. I'm like, the billionaire family. That, that was the nice, the nice family they would summer with because the wealth is like that. I was just like, I listened to her stories forever. She was telling me, you know, all the young debutantes that came through and they always wanted to, you know, she, she was drinking like, you know, they always wanted wine. She's like kicking back cocktails and whiskey. She was just like, she was really fun to talk to. She sounds awesome. Yeah. And we ended up buying, I said, listen, most of this is bad. Like, like 95%. So you, when you said it cooked, what were you seeing? I was seeing that cloudiness. Ah. You know, it was cloudy. And, mm. the, and a lot of the glassware was in very good condition, but it just had been extreme heat. Mm. Um, I said, I think some of this could be okay. And I said, I think these bottles. And, and um, I, know, I said, I know that these six bottles are great. Like, I know that they're whatever. Uh, they'll, be, they'll be fine. They had high whatever. They were in dark glass. And not the dark glass. I have no scientific proof that the dark glass protected it from. But for some reason, it did happen that the dark glass bottles turned out to be good. Hmm. The light glass bottles. Just hmm. anecdotal, coincidental. Um, but I said, I'll give you 50 bucks for every one that is like the dark, right? Because I cracked one open and it was, it, it was great. Um, and I still have like two left from that, which I'll probably never sell just because I love the story. Yeah. And uh, she, um, and I, and and she goes, I go, what do you like to drink? She, she, Tangeray Rampour. She goes, bring me a case of Tangeray Rampour and 50 bucks a bottle. I showed up the next day. She's like, where's my money? We're talking like a woman who's worth who knows how much. And the, the envelope full of like three, $400 was more important to her. And I also had to clean her basement was part of the group. What? I had to take every bottle out. Oh, okay. Every bottle, I couldn't leave anything. I couldn't just take the good stuff and, oh, okay. and, and leave. Um, so... It was a great deal, actually, and a, a bun- there was a whole row of those that turned out to be fantastic. The rest I literally cracked open individually and poured them out and threw it away. Oh, because that's a shame. I, I just, I didn't want them, and I've seen this happen. I've seen whole collections that I've passed on hit the secondary market, and people buying them at auction, it drives yeah. me insane. Yeah. I'm like, at least on two separate occasions, I've seen three, actually three separate occasions, I've seen stuff rebottled that I knew was bad. I mean, I've just like, this is, you know, you've got to be careful. I, at least... Like, literally, I, you know, I threw away a lot of money that day, you know, but, you know, in terms of, like, just destruction, because people sure. still buy these things. Sure, sure, And thinking it's, like, that old, I'm, like, that old whiskey musk or whatever, I was like, no, that's just shit that's cooked and gone. <sighs> I don't know why you like it, but anyways, oh. that's it, but it was a great... No, no, that's fantastic. Yeah, but that's old, but that's the kind of old stories you would get, you know? It, it, that was the kind of people that were around back then. So, and, and I th- that's the interesting thing you say here about DC hasn't always been this contemporary melting pot, pot. And for me, it's been this hub of immigration and great cuisine. And, you know, really, you could, you could meet a real radical mix of people in DC. It's interesting to think of it as an older southern city yeah. where that type of person started moving farther and farther south. Because then I think of, of Nova, right? right. Northern, Northern Virginia, yeah. which it was the same, but now it's Arlington and it's young people and yeah. it's you know, becoming a, a blue stronghold, you know, a democratic yeah. hub. And that old south has gone a little bit farther south again. Absolutely. So it is interesting to think of those waves of evolution. So, so Bourbon hit, Bourbon did fantastically well for you, the name of the place. Correct. Um, that's... The, the thing that when I was at your house with you, the thing that I loved was your prescience in seeing the death of 
videos, right? <laughs> I, I loved that. When you yeah. told me that, I was like, that makes sense for what I know about you yeah. now. So you had the prescience to get out of video rentals. You then had the prescience to do something with American cuisine and bourbon. And then you saw it derelict boxing gym, a rundown yeah. boxing gym. Yeah. And and it's interesting because as much as you know, with blood, sweat and tears, you turned that into Jack Rose Dining Saloon, I was always curious about the fact that you've got this very bespoke, old school scotch bar downstairs, but then the tiki upstairs. Yeah. And now that I speak to you about where you cut your teeth and the places you went, it makes perfect sense that you went with Jack Rose, wooden booths, yeah. leather downstairs, yeah. and tiki upstairs. You want it all. Yeah, we you, did. Right? Well, and the, right behind me, you, you, obviously no one can see this, but there's that island, which was supposed to be a coffee bar. Right, yes. And the I coffee machine still sits there. No, yeah, but there used to be a really nice, which is now still sitting in my house. I refurbished like a, you know, $6,000 espresso machine like the, and trained people on it. I wanted to be good at all things like liquid. Mm. So we wanted to be, okay, let's have great wine. Let's have great cocktails. Let's have great spirits. Let's do uh, great coffee. I mean, we have to have great coffee. I mean, that's just, you know, it's a, it's a liquid. We just thought, we were thinking that way that we were going to have this all-encompassing kind of uh, concept. Um, immediately, coffee was not as big as we thought, so we, we, we killed that. We needed the space for other things. Um, we just kept, you know, we kept modifying Jack, um, especially as we grew whiskey-wise. I mean, it just, you know, when I first opened, you know, we didn't buy any bottle over $130. That was our cap. That was my cap. I was like, if it's over $130, we are not buying it. And we could do it. You could get great whiskeys for under $130. It was crazy. Why $130? It's very specific. Budget. I just knew what our budget was, and I knew I had to stretch. Oh, okay. I knew, I mean, I had a lot of whiskey, um, but in order for us to grow, there was that price point of, you know, under $20 a dram that was Mm. really attractive, and still is, Mm -hmm. um, that we wanted to stay within. So I, you know, not, not that I didn't buy other bottles that I just warehouse for myself, but in terms of Jack Rose being able to flip enough money with the partners to keep it growing in, in a way and keep dividends and payback. You know, we, we had a lot of money that we spent on the place. I had to get that back to people. So uh, it was kind of an arbitrary number that seemed like a very fair number at the time. Yeah. Now $130 wouldn't, you know, that's nothing. That's pretty, yeah, it's not, you know, it's not going to work. Josh and I actually just had this in a recent episode where there was a... Uh, there's always an online article, right? But there was an online article that was whiskeys between 150 and $200 that you must own. Right. And Josh and I read through it and thought, no, that's just not how this yeah. is. Yeah. And so we've never done it on the pod before, but we decided let's do an episode where I bring in five whiskeys and you bring in five whiskeys, regardless of the price point, right. when we talk about them. And in looking over my own shelves, I basically trust Obi's distillery bottlings. Yep up to about $80, uh, maybe between 80 and 100. Right. And then as soon as I hit 100, I start looking at independent bottlers and I start getting single cast at cast strength. Yeah. And, and your, light, your, your eyes immediately yeah. lit up yeah. when I gave that number. Yeah. Was that something you were seeing back in the day? How far was 130 getting you? And then 
I know that you've got a love of independent bottlers and Harvey had a love of independent yeah. bottlers. What were you seeing around about that, that price point? Yeah, I mean, we bought, and if you would have come, and, and I'm sure you did, when we first opened, I mean, oh my God, all the stuff like Ed Cole was bringing in, mm -hmm. um, all the signatory vintage we could get our hands on, all the Caddenhead we could get our hands on. We, we had the OBs, they were you know, mostly diluted, but great expressions, and it mm -hmm. sets the tone for the distillery, so you want people to like, kind of use that. Um, but yeah, we had nothing but stacks of independent bottles. I mean, it looks, the great thing is Jack Rose looks very similar now to the way it did in 2011, mm -hmm. where we're just buying cases of stuff. We're buying barrels of stuff. And there's just multitudes of the same thing because we love those expressions. And that's where we've landed again, where we're buying as much of a single thing that I'm, I'm right now, I'm, I'm less worried about building the collections number as, mm. as I am having enough of the really good stuff. Mm -hmm. Because honestly, anybody that thinks that a whiskey bar has to be 2,000 bottles or 5,000 bottles is wrong. What you need is a rotating stock of stuff that you hand-selected that is amazing. Who cares about the numbers? It's not a numbers game. I mean, we're going to do it. We'll pursue it because that's who we are. Um, I can't help it. But it's about pursuing the best 3,000 bottles or the best 4,000 bottles or the best 2,000 bottles. It's really hand-selected each one, and that's what's been really fun. So I've been going back and trying to find certain bottles. Okay. And we, uh, Chris and I were talking about a bottle um, two days ago that was here when we first started, which was that uh, Linkwood Octave. Um, okay. 64 bottles ever, <laughs> right? And we, we bought every case we could. So when Chris came in and we were training Chris... Like, that has a special place in his heart because that was a fantastic bottle. I remember the, the same, they came out to do it was the Linkwood Octave and the Cragmore Octave. And we were getting it so cheap that we were using it, we were turning people on. It was Cash Train, Cragmore, Heavily Sherry, as opposed to McAllen 18. It was like mm -hmm. half the price. Mm -hmm. And we were like, this is phenomenal, mm -hmm. right? But then, you know, even if you get six, eight cases of something, you're pushing it and pushing it out the door. I ran into two Linkwoods two days after the conversation in a liquor store. Wow. And they were priced appropriately. They were priced like they were when they came out in 2011. Wow. And I was just like, holy shit. So pretty excited. It just got put back on the wall. So we're finding, I, I've been searching for like, you know, feeling a little nostalgic of rebuilding, you know, the best collection we can uh, and only from the best, you know, the best product. I mean, obviously single cask, Cash strength whiskey is what we've always specialized in, and that's where we want to be. So, so, so I've got literally five different questions that I want to sure. ask you all at once here. Yeah. Number one, I know you're a primo hunter. Mm -hmm. um, number two, I know you've got your spots that you know how to hit up. When you yep. could walk into, you didn't just walk into any old liquor store mm -hmm. and there were these two bottles. You knew where you were walking into. Yeah, I, I'm spending about two grand a week there. Okay, there you go. So, so I know you've got that going on. Um, for a period, were you chasing the number of bottles? Was it a good marketing tool? As they're talking about, over the last decade, we've seen the rise of whiskey bars globally. Right. And one of those shortcuts is... Oh, they've got 3,000, 3,500 yeah. open bottles. Yeah. Right? That's a good shortcut. Yes. Did you chase that for a bit? Because I know you, we, still, had a, you had a, still had a wonderful collection. There weren't any cheapies on the shelf. No, no. We, we, did we, we were chasing it. It was a sign, a badge, and, uh, uh, you, know, you know, you wanted to be the, you know, the best whiskey bar and the biggest whiskey bar. 
there's no point in being the biggest if you're not the best. Um, so we, diff- we definitely chase the number, but, I, but also that kind of like, you know, we were hitting like milestones weekly, and I think it was more that all of a sudden people started coming at us like, oh, we have this or we have that. Yes. And, and I just like, it just became kind of a, a, a competition, which I think pushed consciousness forward of whiskey being, oh my God, there's a lot. And, and you, can, you, can, you can go to the West Coast, you can go to the East Coast, you can, you can go up to the Northeast, down to the South. So I think that that momentary thing of like people chasing numbers, and it's one thing if it's a good person chasing numbers, it's a bad thing if it's a bad person chasing, or someone who doesn't have whiskey experience. And that's what we started to see was there was a few top people chasing numbers and you were like, okay, I want to go see what they're doing. They're chasing numbers, but they probably have excellent palates. They're, they've been in the game for a long time. They know what they're doing. That's fun. If you have people competing that know what they're doing, it's fun. Yeah. But then you just had people jumping in and throwing out numbers that when I looked at their list, I was just like, they have more whiskey than we do, but we don't carry 75% of what's on their list and wouldn't carry 75%. Yeah. of what And then you're just like, this has gotten nuts. So I guess it was a, maybe three years ago, four years ago, in every interview, I started going, numbers mean nothing. Stop it. You guys are, first of all, to, the, to, to anybody who's asked me, and I've had plenty of people call me uh, from Canada to here, to, to the south, to the west, saying, you know, we want to open a whiskey bar. And I say, don't do it. You know, you, to just say I'm going to open up a whiskey bar, it's very cash intensive. If you don't have a great palate or you don't know what you're doing, you're just going to put a lot of dead inventory up on the shelf and you're ultimately going to go bankrupt. I was like, if you have a penchant for whiskey, then be a great bar that, that happens to have a lot of great whiskey. Oh, interesting. You know, and, and that's been Mike, Mike Miller's philosophy from the beginning. I was thinking right? Mike Miller when you said that. You know, you know Mike's <laughs> fantastic. You know, it's a Mike Miller bar. And Mike, sorry, we're different. We have totally two different styles. Um, We've always been the best friends and best frenemies out there because we're competing in a way that is that pushes things forward because we collaborate, we talk about each other, um, you know, you know, we celebrate each other's selections, and 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 there's great things there that aren't here, and vice versa. Um, uh, so I love that. Mike's the kind of guy that you know. I always say is my stock answer. If I, if, if I wasn't drinking in my own bar, I would fly to Chicago and drink it his. Yeah. That's it for me. Um, but yeah, I, I, the, the whiskey in the hands of good, good. Whiskey in the hands of evil, <laughs> bad. I don't know. So, so when, when I first met you, it would have been 2012. I, I moved to Virginia the summer of 2012. I was introduced to you and Harvey. And one of the very first things I was told about Jack Rose is we're, we're looking to get as much as we can, mm-hmm. 50% alcohol and above. Yes. And if we have to do 48, 46, we understand what we are going to try and avoid is 43 and 40. Yes. And how well did you do with that? Well, it was, you know, depending upon which style, if you're looking at scotch, it is easier than bourbon mm-hmm. in terms of like, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that comes out of, uh, yeah, I mean, there's still a lot of stuff in the bourbon world that is on the lower side, 90, 94, yeah, right? Yeah. Scotch, you can actually, because you've had 100 amazing distilleries distilling for hundreds of years, you can find enough expressions from a distillery to meet that goal, right? I mean, there's mm. enough vintage product out there. With bourbon, you may not be able to do that. I mean, if you don't carry uh, a lot of the OBs, you're not going to have a very good selection of stuff. And it, it is stuff that people would like to drink. Um, so it was more difficult on the bourbon side. With scotch, 
it was much easier to, to, to follow that pattern. Obviously, there's a few exceptions, you know, that I think if everybody hears our pause, if you don't know the celery I'm talking about, uh, you know, that went the opposite way, you know, as we, you know, kept pushing. And, and, and when Harvey and I first got together, we got brought together uh, by this guy, Matoshowski, because he knew we were both super cash people. And Harvey was actually buying the Willett family estate releases that I was putting out. Ah. So he okay. was buying them. He was hmm. buying all my early ones. And Matt's like, you guys have to meet. Um, and uh, so it was a love of cash drink whiskey and, and higher proof stuff. Now, that being said, you know, there's plenty of, you know, diluted whiskey that is phenomenal. And we are still tasting, um, you know, especially with some age on it, right? I mean, you know, some of that is closer to natural cash strength, you know, with yeah. a lot of age yeah. than, than would be uh, something younger. So um, we, it's, a, it's a case-by-case basis. I mean, we will try something in this, and all those Murray McDavid stuff that they did all the finishes that were 92, I think it was, uh-huh. uh, back in the day. Um, yeah, there's they're, they're some really good stuff. And I bought two off the shelf the other day, some Glenn Rothes from uh, the mid-2000s that I fall sitting, sitting on the shelf, and I'm like, I have to take these. These are these were great drams, and they're you know, and and that stuff was eighty. That Glenn Rother stuff, I believe, wasn't it? Wow, weren't those grenade bottles? Were they? Did they? Oh gosh, change? I'd have to go back and look. Yeah, I, I can't even know. tell you off the top of my head. Yeah. Um. So so you've you made your you made your name in a host of ways, but you're known for bourbon, the bar. You're mm-hmm. known for your love of American spirits. You're known for your your hunting, and then you do Jack Rose with this predominantly scotch focus to it am i correct in saying you had a predominantly scotch focus when you opened jack rose no we actually still had trying to think at the beginning how the bourbon stacked up to the scotch it was probably pretty close um scotch was the first time that we had done uh, uh, a tremendous uh focus on scotch um, bourbon was still taking off. Okay. I mean, it, sure. oh, it was very much so. Yes. Yeah, it was, you know, there was a lot of people that were into it. It was getting slightly harder, but scotch was far more expensive. So to do a heavy scotch bar, uh, was a great call. I mean, that Mm-mm. just, it's a calling card that was like, okay, <laughs> you know, there's plenty of scotches out there that were already $2,000 bottles, you know? Um, Whereas bourbon, a $2,000 bottle was like, what? That, you know, it didn't exist. So I think that, you know, the scotch selection, due to the fact that it was so expensive to drink scotch, or what seemed to be so expensive to drink scotch, um, really kind of took off. Mm. Uh, that fact, that switched within a two-year period. You know, it, was, it, it wasn't long before um, bourbon. And, and here's the other problem was with the bourbon is, we had an amazing bourbon collection, but we had a lot of depth on a lot of great bottles, but the breadth of stuff wasn't as intense yes. um, with the bourbon market. So it was, it was, and it was, I think the first time that, you know, it was a huge success of merging the two together in kind of a harmony because you had, it was so funny because I, in the early days you had your bourbon guys coming in, you had your scotch guys coming in or scotch people, bourbon people. Uh-huh. Um, and it was like two different camps, but now they are one camp. Like the average whiskey drinker is so sophisticated now, they're less likely to turn their nose up at an expression, uh, whether it be scotch, bourbon or rye when recommended by somebody they trust. Yes. Um, so I think that there's been a complete over the last decade education 
in in whiskey drinking, and I think that we've uh, truly kind of helped that along. I think we've educated a lot of people in terms of that you know you you shouldn't look at whiskey being you know one style. You should just look at you know whiskey as a group and then an experiment. We we and then the whiskey maker and the distillery. So we no longer have regions. Nothing is set up by region anymore. Ah. Right? <laughs> we, we have said now, you must, just as I say, you should trust the independent bottler. If they are selecting casks, trust them. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it be bourbon, whether it be Armagnac, whether it be single malts. Mm-hmm. When a distillery has decided to do a peated style, an unpeated style, a sherry finish, a port... You trust the distiller. There's so much that goes into making wood. I should go make a wood. Making whiskey. <laughs> there's um, a lot that goes into making wood also. Exactly. Uh, there's so much that goes into making whiskey, especially on the bourbon side, that a mash bill's grain percentage switching by five degrees or five points mm. is maybe on the lower side of importance. Mm. Who the distiller is, who the stills, mm. what, wood, what wood management, what warehousing, all this stuff. Yeah. And if I'm going to tell, if I'm going to look at a whiskey drinker and say, you should drink bourbon over rye, rye over bourbon. That's not the case. You should drink these ryes over these bourbons, these bourbons over these ryes, these single malts over these bourbons, these bourbons over these single malts because of who made them or they. this is a magical cask yes. or whatever. Yes. To, to really simplify it down to it just being a grain proposition is too simplistic. Interesting. We have to, we have to think of it as who's the producer, who is selecting these casks, you know, what has been your experience? And I'm not saying that if you, you know, if you've tried Smoky Petey stuff and you're like, I don't like it, oh my God, we just need to go on a new journey. We have to start with Bunahaben or we have to yes. start with the slightly peated that we're drinking today yes. uh, from Kilhoman. Yes. There's no absolutes in the whiskey world. There's no absolutes with a distillery. You just need to start trusting and trying. And, and I think that's where Jack Rose has moved into a new phase of just it being about the entire process and making sure that people understand that nothing is simple, everything is complex, uh, and there's gradations of quality, um, and really start to discover uh, you know, the entire process and, and, and what goes into the bottle, and then start again, and, 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 and go on an educated journey with people you trust. This is fascinating. I've got so many questions, but I'm going to pause you here. Oh, can I say that part yeah, of that? Please, please, please. So please. when we talked about this, I mean, we had been talking about this for, for a while, like, because we, you know, we really get into process. But it, it, something uh, also that you said one day when you brought over that single cash nation, Glenn Farkless, with Glenn Farkless beautifully written on it. It's uh-huh. one of my, I think I'll probably keep that bottle when it's empty because I love the way that Glenn Farkless is across the single cash nation, right? I mean, it's, a, it's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's a splash, the splash yeah. of color. And if you were to call Glenn Farkless, they would say, I'm a Highland distillery, right? Mm-hmm. But, it, but, but they've arbitrarily put into this new category called Speyside. Uh-huh. And, you know, Vatted Whiskey is no longer Vatted Whiskey. Now it's, it's blended. And what is in a name? It's what is in a bottle. Mm-hmm. And that really mm-hmm. kind of like, it, it's just like, wait a minute, we are putting far too much importance on a geographical reference that somebody arbitrarily put. We need to Look at the distillery. It's all about the distillery, the distillery, the management, uh, the people there. Oh, you know, oh, so we we talk about people all the time. You know, that's all it. the time. So we just want to be that. We want to be part of the learning process. Be part of the final process. The you know the, the last thing. 
And that's exactly the question I want to ask you is, for so long, we accepted regions as a great way to educate the newcomer mm-hmm. to the category. You run a bar, you're dependent on dollar bills coming out of pockets and wallets, and you're okay walking away from the regions. Are you taking on more education with the consumer, or are you taking on different education with the consumer? I think, we're, it's, I think it's a combination of both. I think we're taking on more education in the sense that they're going to look at us and say, I, I don't like Isla. And I think that naturally is going to beg the question with our staff of, well, why don't you like Isla? Would you, <laughs> would, would you be willing... Would you be willing to go on a, a quick journey? I mean, I think our staff is, uh, you know, Chris, Brittany, Joey, Christian, like all these people. Uh, God, have I missed anyone? I want to make sure. <laughs> it's dangerous when you, you start know. listing. Yeah. Uh, you know, these are accomplished whiskey people. They know that they, they can easily recommend a great whiskey for you. Uh, you just have to be open. And that's a great thing is, and we joked, and we, 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 you know, before COVID, and I'm sure it'll be again, we just call this the International Locals Bar. You know, because so many people fly in to come yeah. here, people that are in town for only a month or they're at their embassy or people coming on vacation, they come here, they'll spend one or two nights uh, drinking here. They might go to dinner, then drink here. They might spend one night at dinner, then drink here. I've had people stay a week. I had a, I had a couple uh, once hand me a list. They, they showed up. They're like, we're going to be here for the next three days. Here's a two-page list of every whiskey we want to drink. Is that possible? And I looked at their list and I said, I will make sure every whiskey on this list is here over the next 72 hours. <laughs> And I did it, and they did. They and they microdrammed, you know. Okay. We, yes, you know, yes, we, yes, yes. We made it. We made it approachable for them, so they could try all of these whiskeys without a breaking the bank for full ounces or two ounces, but going half sure. ounce, quarter ounce, whatever. Um, they were true, you know, wow. great people that wanted to try, and and I wanted to accommodate them. However, we that's however very we could. cool, Bill. That really yeah. is very cool. Um, so so, in that sense, yes, we are taking on an educational role. We'll probably do a lot more tastings. We'll probably, you know, be pushing this philosophy a lot more simply because there's so many great distilleries across the world now. To dismiss anyone based on region or location is just insane to me. Hmm. And I think we're all just, it's just a natural progression of whiskey that there's a million different styles out there and distilleries make multiple different styles within the distillery and you just have to believe in people and what they're doing. So. so so, how do you build a menu? We're so used to walking into a whiskey bar. We get the menu. It's by region. And then it's got regions of yeah. Scotland, then regions of the world. Now it would be alphabetical by distiller, distillery. Okay. So great. So now, you know, when I tell people that Kalila makes an amazing unpeated spirit, yep. they're, you know, uh, they're going to hear this podcast. There'll be more people that hear your podcast that come in here and are willing to take a journey. For sure. You know, this is, this is the first time I've talked about this publicly oh. on what we're doing. Thank you. Or, and, and we've been, you know, we've been moving this direction for quite some time, and it, it was just, you know, finally, you know, with COVID being here, it's given us the time to reorganize our thoughts, to reorganize the collection, uh, to, to stock the collection with the, the way that we'd like to. Single Cast Nation has their own section now, Thank which has uh, happened you. during COVID. Thank you. All right? I mean... Um, Thank you. You know, and it was great because, you know, there's a whole row of stuff. And, the, uh, and, and I stare at that Glenn Farkless, you know, all the time because I love the bottle. Well, the, the, good, the good news is that is the Glenn Farkless label. Only George Grant has that label. Not, yeah. not just because it's got Glenn Farkless, but yeah. because it's also the old style. Yeah. 
and only George Grant has that label. It's fantastic. So we, we are working on more Glenn Farkless with him, uh, but you know, there's COVID and there's moving at the speed of Scotland, yeah. and then there's moving at the speed of Scotland and, during COVID. And so. our battle has like maybe 25, 30% left, I think. So. <laughs> we're, we're, we're in desperate need of another bottle of Glenn Farkless Single Cast Nation. It was, a, it was a cracker. I was actually, I even sold you one from my own collection when you were pivoting during COVID. Yeah, and which, that's the one that's up there, you know? <laughs> that's why I sold it to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, listen, we, when, when we had to rebuild this collection, you know, I had to A, sell off a lot of stuff that I did not want to, and B, I had to ask a lot of people to, uh, you know, what do you have in your closet that you can part with that... Um, will get in drinkers' hands. Yep. Will not go into a collection to collect dust. Yep. It will actually get out there and be drunk. Yep. No, um, I, and I was so happy to be able to do that. You've done so much for Single Cast Nation. You know, over the, the eight, nine years we've known each other. Yeah. You've been such a tremendous supporter. Yeah. When COVID hit and you you pivoted and it was very worrying watching online, watching announcements <laughs> where you just started selling off the Jack Rose collection, but then you also started Am I right in saying this? You also started selling off your own collection yeah, to I, support yeah. your employees at Jack Rose? Yeah, I sold it off for, you know, we sold the collection within Jack Rose, which really helped us get us over the hump initially with employees because we didn't, we didn't pull back on the reins um, in the immediate aftermath of being closed. So we dug quite a hole in salaries, um, and, and, and hourlies and stuff like that because you anticipate those. You know, I think the average restaurant and bar, which you've got to move away from, is operating in a deficit at all times. I was going to ask you this question. You know? And, and all of a sudden, when the spigot gets turned off, you're 30 days behind. Yep. Um, so you have to immediately, okay, well, the most important thing is getting everyone whole and then planning for the future. Um, so I had... And, and, and then we had just opened up a new restaurant of which we had... Some people that put their investments down, uh, you know, family members from all the different partners that had no savings. They put their savings in because they believed in us, and now we have no way to repay you. So, you know, the collection we sold in here was very pivotal in getting everyone whole. And then I started selling my outside collection as a way to, A, get all the investors who needed their money back immediately so they would feel secure to get them paid off and also supplement uh, keeping this place afloat um, during those early months. Plus, you know, we were doing two bags of groceries every Wednesday for every employee. Oh, wow. So I every Wednesday, that. we got to see every employee. Uh, why in that initial shutdown, that three, first three or four months, when we had no employment whatsoever, you know, we were just trying to keep them afloat, you know, making sure that they all, you know, and we got to meet with them and, you know, if somebody needed a few bucks here or there, whatever, anything we could do to, to keep everybody going and then immediately getting them Every, everyone staffed up and back on payroll very quickly wow. um, when we had jobs, when we had actual work. Um, and then we kept healthcare going the whole time. So no one had to worry about paying for healthcare. That's brilliant. So we, we, we did that and it cost a lot of money to do that. So I sold off a significant amount of my collection to do that. But then again, I had people calling me and saying, I've got bottles to sell because they know, you know, and I was like, well, Okay, let's buy. So I was, you know, we were, you know, buying stuff and then selling stuff in, in the bottle shop and then putting the, you know, stuff that we need on the shelf. And it, you know, I had enough time that I was able to buy and sell and buy and sell to rebuild, you know, by the end of May, there was zero bottles, not one bottle on any shelf in Jack Rose. 
now we're sitting here staring at, there's roughly just what we're staring at around the room. There's probably 2,500 bottles. Okay. And we're sitting underneath the booth. There's another couple hundred buried, (laughs) you know, so. When you're talking there about time, one of the things that nobody knew was, what's this even going to look like? How... Huh. How long term were the decisions you were making? Were you just like, this will get us through this week? Yes. This will get the staff through this week? This will get us from Wednesday to Wednesday? Mm-hmm. That's really the place you were in. And we were in the place that every week was, Fucking hell. what do I do to survive this week? What do I sell to survive this week? Who is out there? Uh, who will buy, you know, without losing a ton of money? You know, I mean, there's one thing, you know, and, and the... The people that waited in line and bought Jack Rose's inventory, everyone got a significant deal. Like, I was, I had actually already put my house, I had already contacted real estate. I was emptying my house because I thought that was to go next. Okay, I'll sell the house. We'll bring in that revenue. That'll keep us afloat. Those first early days of the consumers coming, our patrons showing up and buying bottles gave me enough breathing room in the first week to kind of pull back a little bit and say, okay, does the house need to sell? I just continued to like, okay, I'm going to keep anticipating I'm going to sell the house, but is it going to be reality? Which it wasn't. I, obviously, I, I still have my house, thank God. Um, grief, man. Uh, but yeah, that was, the, that was the reality, that the house had to go. Uh, we, had, um, you know, we had one large uh, buyer out of New York, a private individual who was uh, uh, generous and, and purchased part of my collection uh, okay. for his own use, not to sell and flip. But uh, honestly, I, I think he likes to give very good gifts, you know? So there's people out there that are going to get some really great stuff. Uh, so he was really, uh, came at a perfect time, kind of an angel uh, buyer. Um, but then again, I had the people that called me that sold me amazing product and just crazy bottles that I was just like, wow, thank you. First edition of this, first edition of this, first edition of this, you know, and I paid them a, a great sum. Uh, for them, but man, we got them back. We got really cool stuff. Um, and then we bought, you know, I've been tucking away stuff, you know, like Chip Tate balconies. They were at, at, at every collection. So one day when Chip gets his new place open, we'll do, you know, I'll get him in here, I hope, and we'll do a tasting with Chip and we'll say, hey, this is what he did back in the day, you know, and this is what he's doing now. And so we've just been like, I've been, you know, compass, early compass box stuff. Mm been stashing that away for nice. getting a glazier tape. So we're now thinking, so we were already thinking 100 years out. Now we're really going crazy. We're thinking madness. I, and I still have all the first edition single cast nations that are not up there so we can do it a crazy anniversary tasting or whatever. We'll, we'll you know, be the, here. We'll bring some more. That Kill Home in Five, that Lecheg, uh, that Lafroig. <laughs> Oh, my God. I still have those. So we'll yep. do a crazy uh, taste. So, so I think we're going to be very event-driven and celebratory-driven uh, in the future, just celebrating whiskey and what it's meant to us and all these milestones. Well, and, and you'd already started that thing. You'd had your, your premier drams event. You'd had two of those. And, and I'm very honored to say I was a part of the first and the second. Yes. I even, gosh, as much as I live two hours down the road, I flew in to be at the second event, yeah. and then I flew in from Seattle, came here the Saturday morning, right. sun, Sunday morning, whichever day you... Sunday. Sunday, right? 
I did the Sunday morning event yeah. here, yeah. and then I drove back to the airport and flew on to Scotland. That's crazy. Um, just so that I could support that event, which yeah. I, I wouldn't even think twice about supporting. Um, and so, in a good way. That's, yeah. I think, sometimes used as a bad expression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I wouldn't think twice about crossing the street to help you uh, is a bad thing. Um, and so, Premier Drams, obviously, the third. Right. We lost to COVID. Yep. The fourth, in the same kind yep. of time of year, we've already lost to COVID. Yeah. Um, do you do you see that coming back later this year? Do you want to do that spring of next year? Uh, or do you just want to turn it into ongoing events I, I that pour great things? I don't know. Uh, we're definitely going to bring back Premier Drams when it will be and in what fashion. I mean, it was, it was literally, I think, the best value in whiskey drinking in the world, simply because when we, we, we didn't ask any of the participating um, distilleries or independent bottlers or anybody to put them on. We just said, bring really good stuff that people yep. want to drink. Yep. That's how, you know, and it really showed because everybody came with a game and it was amazing. And it was, and it was, we limited the amount of people in here. So it wasn't too crowded. And it was like a cocktail party for whiskey where everyone, you just saw people grabbing something, walking over. You'd see five people that don't know each other mm. talking about a dram. And then you should, you got to try this because there was more, there was too much good whiskey that you could, that yes. you, you could drink. You couldn't drink yes. uh, what was here. All cash strength. It was either the tagline was cash strength. Was it cash strength, vintage or new? Re it had to be something new. Mm. So if you had launched, you know, if, you know, Abelor had, had, had launched something new, and they wouldn't do, sure, we'll do it, you know. Um, but other than that, it was, uh, you know, just really mostly cash strength, you know, expressions. Well, it, so. it's the type of event, if I wasn't pouring at it, I would drive the two hours up the road to attend it. Yeah. I can't give a better compliment than that. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and, I, and I approach it from the same direction. I go, would I buy this ticket? You know, and, if, is, and, and, and especially with my access it takes a lot for me exactly. to be like, is it worth it for me? And if it's worth it for me, I, then I know it's worth it for the consumer. And, and that's why yeah. I like the remit of, you don't have to buy your space, you just have to bring good stuff to pour. And my mindset was, if somebody came to my house, what would I pour for them? Right. That's what I'm going to take to Jack Rose. Yeah. And so then as I'm standing up in my spot, pouring for people, I find what you were talking about, five and six people would gather around, and we would talk. Yeah. And we would talk about that dram. Oh, you like that one? Right. Have this dram. And then, you know, I don't want to take up too much of your time or take up too many of your pores. Yeah. But if you would indulge me a third, yeah. I think you might enjoy this, given that you've enjoyed those two. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's how I pour for people in my house. Yep. And yep. so to pour for people like that at Jack Rose was easy peasy and an absolute pleasure. Yeah. yeah. And the blind tasting station was a lot of fun for people, too. <laughs> Uh, you know, we, we, we started doing that at the first premiere drams and, uh, you know, Kelly Carmack from God, I know I'm going to screw this up either women who whiskey or DC women of whiskey, but she won the first one and came in, uh, and came in second or third on the second time. Nice. She's pretty awesome. Um, so it was great. And it was such an eclectic group of people. Uh, I, we always the first thing we train people at Jack Rose is, if you think you know what a whiskey drinker looks like, you don't. So if you get sent over to a table because they ask for a whiskey advisor and you try to eye up, you know, the 50-year-old guy or the 75-year-old, you know, white guy sitting there and you turn to them and go, I heard you need a whiskey advisor. Ugh. And, and they're sitting with their, you know, 21-year-old you know, daughter and she's like, 
I'm the whiskey person. He's drinking IPAs uh-huh. or he's drinking like, uh-huh. you know, it's nuts. You can't tell. There is no, there is no true image of a, of a, a whiskey drinker anymore. It's, it can be anyone. Don't well, make the mistake of ever thinking, you know, you're going to figure it out. Well, and, everyone and, is. And let me give the compliment to your attendees. They would be bringing me drams as well. Yes. And they would say, give me your glass and we'd go off and yeah. pour for me and say, given what we drank with you here, you need to be tasting this from this other table. Yeah. And it was always brilliant as well. So so kudos on that. I'm excited. The reason I'm asking you about it is because I'm excited for it to come back. Yeah, yeah. We're and pretty I'm excited to come back and support it again. Yeah, and I think it'll be even better. My, my biggest problem is, you know, we only allowed 16, 16 people to showcase their stuff. And mm-hmm. I know that there's a lot more than 16 that want to do it now. Sure. For sure. And back then, I just called all the people who... I knew were big supporters of us in the industry. And that's how I said, hey, would you guys do it? And, and, and everyone did. Um, so obviously, I'm going to call them first, you know, and <laughs> say, hey, you. Would, you, would, you, uh, would you mind doing it again? And, 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 you know, obviously, you guys were big supporters. Wilderness Trail was big supporters. You know, Drew, who doesn't do any shows. I mean, Willett has been fantastic. You know, a lot of great. It was a great mix of American and Scott. I, yes. It's just a great mix. Yep. Um, and yep. we did cocktails. We had a couple cocktail stations. Oh, okay. Uh, so yeah. we did have a couple. Uh, so if you wanted to, I don't know, we're not pitching Premier Drams. I don't even know when it's going to be. <laughs> so I feel like I just was going on in. Uh, <laughs> I was just watching because and you, get a you free did. Pin. <laughs> you did know. that dangerous thing again when you start making a list. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then one thing we know about lists is not everyone's on it. And yeah. Then, and then people read between the lines. And there's there's two things that I want to ask you about, and then I, I know we got to get out of here because you are the busiest man that I know. Um, number one. You pivoted during COVID to a bottle shop mm-hmm. that's been incredibly successful, which has also included, I know you did it with the bar, I know you've done it even more with the bottle shop of your own barrel picks. Mm-hmm. And then I want to talk a little bit about the future. And you did mention this a moment ago where we now know the business model for how you operate an eatery and a drinkery right. and potentially a dancery. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> basement for haberdashery. Yeah. Um, like, we know it's not a sustainable model, and yet people have been doing it for decade upon decade upon decade. So I want to come back to you and get your mind on what you think the future holds. But first things first, you pivoted to a bottle shop. What did that look like? How quickly did that happen in the pandemic? And what does the future hold even for your bottle shop? We pivoted as fast as the mayor uh, put the, uh, the new law into effect, which is very quickly. I mean, there's nothing more resilient than a small business person. I mean, they're, they, ups and downs, they're used to it. They give it, if you give them the tools, they're very creative. They're creative, that's why they got into it. I mean, they're all creative. Uh, she gave us an opportunity that really spoke to us, which was the, the bottle shop, and it was life-saving uh, for us. I mean, being able to do that, it got, you know, it gave us uh, work for people, um, it created a tremendous amount of revenue. Uh, we were already working on pushing that direction with the ABC board prior to COVID. It was something that we were probably already going to get into. The only thing was uh, now it's for the whole city. A lot of people can do it, whereas I was pushing, I was trying to push for a pilot program through us mm. uh, to, get it, to get it going because there's nothing, there's so many great restaurants and bars, um, even if, it, even if it's um, 
a small ethnic restaurant, whether it be Ethiopian or Greek or something, that wants to celebrate wines or particular spirit from their country, and yet they educate you, and then there's either no place to buy it or they're not getting a percentage of that sale, and that's really annoying. So really, by this new aspect of the ABC law, which is allowing restaurants and bars to sell directly to consumer, allows all of the hard work and training that went into the staff and then was then put, you know, given to the customer, it gives them an opportunity to monetize that. So it's a, truly a game changer for Washington, D.C. I really think it's going to be fun for, I hope that a lot of smaller restaurants and especially ethnic restaurants take advantage of it. It's on the books to stay? It's on the books to stay. You just had to, it, you had to file your paperwork by a certain date and you were automatically grandfathered in. Wow. Permanently. Okay. Okay. Now, you can get it after the fact, but you will be subject to um, local ANCs, neighborhood, neighborhood groups. They'll be able to weigh in. Oh, okay. Before, you were just, you know, um, and it showed to be not, it's so funny that everybody gets concerned about change, but then something like the pandemic happens and you see how responsible people are. <laughs> Right, and yeah. then the people yeah. could have a cocktail outside yeah. and be in control. Yeah. It's like if you give them some freedom, they that we haven't seen the abusiveness. <sighs> Drives me fucking bonkers when we always build it based on the most negative, not based on the most positive. Yes, and then you see great positives coming from human beings. Yeah, it's amazing. We have a horrible neighborhood group. One of the neighborhood associations, not our ANC. Our ANC is fantastic, but one of our neighborhood group that's always about uh, worst case scenario. We need to stop you before you start because the worst can happen. And we have seen through this everything that they hated and fought pre-pandemic, uh, you know, has been allowed during pandemic, and it's been just amazing. And uh -huh. we've really had uh, it's kept restaurants and bars afloat. It's also show what what the pandemic did show is how, especially in this community in D.C., where the second large hospitality second largest employee after the federal government employer after the federal government, how important we are. And how many people, uh, whether then it flows down to the trucking companies and the distributors, yes. how important we are yeah. and uh, how many jobs and, and, and how many, uh, you know, uh, kind of careers were put at risk due to COVID. So yeah. I think that hopefully it's educated a lot of neighborhood people on, you know, these great restaurants and bars are really the backbone of, of a lot of communities and they'll look at us a little differently and be open-minded. That's not to say all, but I'm saying there, there are a few more older, established, outlive their time, their usefulness here, and, um, that need, you know, need to either you know, wake up or, uh, or go away. I've um, never seen you choose your words this carefully. That was, I was like watching that line. I could have gone. <laughs> Just because when you watch so many, hey, listen, we have fared so well during COVID. Uh, we've you know, kept our staff on. We're looking forward to a double Christmas party. <laughs> or, or excuse me, holiday party, uh, which will be debauchery. And, uh, you know, I just can't wait to get everyone in the same room and have a drink. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've kept the family atmosphere. I think we've stepped up as best we could. I think a lot of people did the same. I know uh, Gina over Buffalo and Bergen. Um, I know she did a lot for her staff. Um, I think there's a lot of people that did the most they could during COVID and, they need to be celebrated and people need to recognize how hard it was to do that. So uh, I don't know where I was going with this other than I just want to drink with my staff <laughs> at a holiday party. That's it. So. 
Well, and you and I were talking before we hit record here that the mask mandate was just lifted a week ago. And, and the fact that folk can now, you know, I, I don't quite know what capacity is like at the stadium that we mentioned the stadium earlier yep. on as well. Um, but people now have permission from the CDC to come out and be present again. And you and I are sitting here. I, I didn't yep. walk in with a mask on. You didn't greet me with a mask on. We're not talking with yep. masks on or... Um, we are six feet apart, but that's just because I didn't have a chance to shower yeah. before I left the house today. Um, do you think people are going to embrace the going out again? Are people going to be shoulder to shoulder at the bar again? Do you think there's going to be a period of caution as people dip their toe back into the thing that they desperately want? Uh, I, you know, we saw about a 35% increase over our COVID numbers. Now, we're still a far cry from our sure. pre-COVID numbers. I'm with you. Um, but we actually, on Saturday night, apparently, I, w- I was not here, but had a small line, which okay. we hadn't seen since way pre-COVID. Sure. But that's because right now we're running about 65% capacity, 70, simply for two reasons. One, we're redoing our systems. We don't have the staffing that we need. Uh, unfortunately, we lost some of the best and the brightest during COVID to going out and seeking other employment outside of the sure. hospitality industry. Sure. We had a lot of people that chose to move back to their, you know, where their parents live, um, to be close to the family. So there was, a, there was an exodus from our industry because of uncertainty that we are not going to get back, sure. which has left you know, a lot of places short-staffed. And, and quite honestly, was among our most talented individuals. So losing that top tier, we have to train new people. We have to get them. So we couldn't go back to 100%. Gotcha. Um, so we weren't shoulder-to-shoulder. We were running about 70 70%. I don't know what to expect over the next few months in terms of um, will we get back to packed. I think it'll be a little cautious. I think we'll get back to 70%. That being said, I think we'll probably over the next three months have to maintain 70% because none of us are going to have our people in place. Uh, so it's, I think it's probably a good natural. Now, will we have enough revenue coming in that without any additional stimulus dollars or uh, help from the banks in terms of mortgages or rents or landlords that we're going to be in trouble. I'm not sure about that. That is the one thing that concerns me is the fact that getting a bump of 20 or 30% over your current COVID numbers still may not be enough to survive. So I think we're all, I think that people are going to look and say, oh, look, Jack Rose had a 10 person line on Saturday night to get in, but we still probably weren't profitable simply because of the amount of staff that we've kept on um, and and the rent going. So I think there could be the visual that Oh, well, oh, bars and restaurants are back, but we're not back. We're not even close to back. We are, Saturday night, we ran about, um, I'd say I know the final numbers, and we were 65% of what a normal Saturday night was. But it's that last 30% that counts. Yeah, right. You know? Yeah. You know? It's not the first 70%. first 70% breaks even, maybe. Difference you know? between cost and margin. Yeah. It's, we're not. We're not close. And I'm afraid that there's a dark period ahead. In terms of if they lay off the gas and be, and I, I'm not looking for, I'm not looking really for, I'm looking for, you know, landlords and banks to defer a little bit longer or to uh, reduce and give us a little more breathing room so we can start to ramp up. And that, and I think once again we're in better position than most. So I'm really speaking. There's a lot of small people out there that still could be really hurt by people thinking that oh we're we're good, we're not good. Well, just while we're here. Do you think the consumer is in a better place 
to better support this type of business now. If you think about where food profits lie, uh, and we heard from some of the places in, in New York that they were really operating on 2% margins up in New York. Right. You know, and, and that, my hair was already grey, but it would have yeah. gone grey in reading that. Yeah. But, and yet meals already seem to be so expensive. Right. Our tipping or minimum wage, which is yeah. you know, so relevant right now. Yeah. Do you think the consumer has seen an industry go to the wall and is now saying, wow, we really do need to rethink how we, how we pay our bills, how we support our staffs uh, that, that we go in and frequent? Yeah, I, I mean, I am rethinking how we do everything in terms of, um, and, I, and I said this, I was saying this even almost a year ago, I was like, when this is all over, in a few years, people are going to walk into restaurants and bars and go, oh, oh this place was set up pre-COVID. Mm. There'll, be a, mm. there'll be a layout. There'll be an access to, say, to-go windows. There'll be uh, where the kitchen's located. People will design, and I know I would if I was designing a new restaurant or bar, I would design it based on the worst-case scenario of if I had to pivot, what should the place look like? And also, you know, keeping to go, you know, we didn't do a lot of to go pre-COVID. Um, having the ability to, to go food, to go cocktails, to go whiskey, uh, that's here to stay. So we'll keep that as a profit center so we can always pivot. Th there's got to be a thinking holistically of how we pivot our staff into other avenues, other revenue streams that keep the restaurant in place and keep them yeah. employed and also having reserves. I think a, a restaurant that's not thinking about having, I know for us, we've got to build up at least a half a million dollar reserve to, to make sure that we can weather this without incident and make sure that people are taken care of. I watched another financial show last night. I was just went down this rabbit hole of, you know, how pensions and 401ks and blah, blah, blah. How do we create a company that can, one, have the employees be able to grow uh, with you? How do we create a company that challenges them to want to grow and how do we create something that they could work for 20, 30, or 40 years and move on? Because obviously in this industry, it's more of a young person's game. Yep. You're on your feet a lot, late hours. You know, I'm 50. You know, what does that look like for me? What does that look like for our management staff? I mean, how do we do this? And we were already thinking that way. This has truly accelerated it. And, you know, I, I have a huge task ahead of me to create the kind of company that I would want to work for. So... You know, I. It's it's going to be difficult. Next couple of years, you know, I think are really pivotal for companies, and I, I think people are going to look at it and say, "Why would I want to be in this industry when there's no room for growth, when there's no stability?" I think that people need to be asking themselves that questions, which is going to force companies to ask themselves that question, so they can maintain the level of uh, of uh, professional that we had that we were moving to. The yeah. great professional yeah. bartender, the chef. You know, these people that are really lifers in our industry, you know, the COVID could have set us back dramatically unless we do something individually and start getting that message out there that companies are looking to be progressive in terms of how they treat their staffs and how they uh, fund things going forward. Um, it could be far more devastating. So there's already friends that are looking at, they're going back to school. They're already, they went back to school yes. they to uh -huh. go on, during COVID in anticipation of still leaving. You know, we have one employee right now who's getting ready to leave us, has been with us. He wasn't even with us during COVID. We hired him during COVID because we needed an extra, 
and now before COVID's over, in, in another two weeks, now COVID's over, in another couple of weeks, he's leaving us because he got training all during COVID. Wow. And it's gone. And, and to see someone that talented, uh, who I'd love to work with, to see them leave the industry simply because they, they just don't see a future. <laughs> it's a hell of a task you've got in front of you, but I think it's going to be true of, of other places as well. The, the one that got me in what you just said there was, had, had the industry previously operated with rainy day funds? You, you, always, you already talked about operating within a deficit. You've yeah. got those 30-day terms that you're just working to get those paid mm-hmm. off. A rainy day fund seems like a luxury that wouldn't have been discussed or wouldn't have been in place. Is that the case? I, I think I think for for smaller companies, yeah. For smaller some mom and pops, really small that are family run and operated, you know, they have a different you know, they're they're you know they probably have reserves because, you know, everything goes back to the family. For and maybe the bigger corporations, like hotel bars and restaurants and stuff, they were getting propped up by huge corporations. Then anybody in that mid level, uh, probably not. Mm. Probably mm. no rainy day fund. And you know what I had as our rainy day fund was, you know, eight thousand whiskey bottles, right? You know that I that I you know I could tap into. So in a sense, I mean, we had one, but I, that was to carry us with great whiskey for the next twenty or thirty years. Um, you know, now, you know, that's a bit different. So, um, but I, I, you know, that also means you're going to have to, you know, and I've always been a big proponent of owning your space and I still am, uh, you know, I, I think small business people have to own their own real estate. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. And that way they can tap into that resource mm. if they need to, they need to, you know, be aggressive if you can 15 year fix. So you build up some equity so you can tap into that when something like this happens. And so you can weather the ups and downs of the market uh, and stick true to your, your core values by owning the, the property. And maybe getting to a point where you no longer have rent, that all you have is your property taxes and you know basic operating costs. So if you're thinking long-term, you should be thinking, A, you know, how do I, you know, no matter what you do, how do I own my own building? How do I tap that as a resource when things go bad? How do I, how do I tap that? Or how do I stay true to being, you know, if whiskey went out of fashion, which it never will, you know, would I want to stay a whiskey bar if nobody's coming in? Well, that's my passion, so <laughs> it's not changing. So, you know, uh, you know, we just have to think long term. And that means landlords have to be progressive. You know, don't, don't, don't get in with a long landlord. Sign long. You know, it's always that one thing, that rule of thumb. Sign the shortest lease at the lowest rate with the most options. Mm. You want that. Mm-hmm. Obviously, landlords don't want that. They want the, you know, they, a lot of times they want to either tie you into a, a 10-year lease so they can, you know, at, you know, especially in developing areas, they want to tie you into a, a lease where you're covering their nut while the, everything goes up. And then as soon as everything gets great, <laughs> they want to jack, you know, jack your rent. Uh-huh. You know? The whole point of going into developing and a developing market is getting the lower rate and you should be able to buy your building. That's what you want. You want to be the person on the other side of that. Not let a landlord be on the other side of that. That makes perfect sense. So. Absolutely perfect sense. I'm, I'm trying to wrap up the interview because I'm so cognizant of your time and you need to move on to the next thing. And, and you keep raising questions yeah. for me to ask questions about. Um, there's going to be a part two. I'm, I'm not going to get to ask you all my questions. Yeah, we, we bar- with the, some of the things we outlined at the beginning, right? we, we haven't even gotten to. Right, we've we barely scratched the surface here, but I, I really appreciate your time. I'd, I'd be remiss 
if I didn't pivot back to your barrel selections. Okay. Because I've I've purchased them from you, and I've I've purchased your. You mentioned Mike uh, Mike Miller earlier on. I've got a bottle of the Delilah's Jack Rose collaboration, Colhoman. Right. Um, I've got some new riff that I, I picked up from you earlier this year yep. that you had in the bottle shop. And I also picked up your, your Jack Rose lightly peated Colhoman, 1x bourbon, 1x sherry. And, and you and I talked about this on the phone just a couple of weeks ago. That X bourbon, lightly peated Colhoman single cask, is absolutely phenomenal. And, and you know, I make no bones about it on the podcast. I've, I've got plenty of Colhoman to right. keep me busy. It's one that I've started reaching for in an evening. Yeah. Like, and I don't want it to end, but I do want to enjoy it. Yes, absolutely. And I, and I keep pouring it. What are you, you know, on the other hand, I'm also an independent bottler who comes to you and tries to sell you single casts of bottled goods. You're right. You're doing the thing that I'm doing in, in, in different ways. What are you looking for when you're picking a barrel? Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, you're looking for something interesting and unique, obviously, but something that's, you know, it, it's, it can't just be different and unique. It's got to be a great whiskey. And it's got to be, you know, obviously we're looking at it from, from, from nose to finish. Mm-hmm. You know, we're looking for a complete whiskey. Often, a lot of the whiskeys that I've picked over the years have been described as more lush as, as being, uh, Interesting. you know, especially on the bourbon side, you know, really big mid palates and stuff like that. But, you know, I think that's also a lot of people mistaking the fact in the old days that they weren't drinking cash strength. They weren't, you know, single barrel. So you have that weightiness that comes with most cash strength or yep. uh, expressions. So in many ways, I think that, you know, that descriptor, although I think it is good, is, is a lot of people's first introduction into that in, in single barrel cash strength. Just looking for that completeness. I mean, you want it to, you know, the nose has got to be, you know, score high, the palate, the balance, the finish. Uh, you, want it, you want it to be, you know, you know, when you're dealing with certain casts that we can't get very often, you're looking for something that uh, maybe from a bigger distillery, something that's slightly off character for them, right? Yep. I yep. mean... You're yep. not looking for the same old thing, just the just cash strength. Yep. You're looking for something that shows a little more breadth and range from that distillery. So if it comes down to, wow, this is so on point for what someone would consider their profile, <laughs> and this one is just as equally great but is not, you're going to go that direction. You want to show the variance in, in distilleries because a lot of times if they're doing blending or doing small batches or whatever, you lose some of that obviously individual qualities of a single cask. So obviously looking for something that's different and unique, but celebrates the distillery itself in some way, uh, something well-rounded, something big, uh, obviously single barrel cash strength, nacho filtered, wherever you can do, uh, whenever that ability presents itself. Um, and then if not, and it's something that's a barrel program that maybe one of the bigger houses has that, has to be on point with their dilution 90, 94, whatever. You're looking for something as unique as possible. Um, obviously, you're not bothering to try it at cash strength. You want to try it at it's diluted because you're looking for something that's going to be that character when the consumer gets it, yeah. not you know something that you know is you know completely different than when you tried it in the Rick House. Um, <laughs> so being mindful, and 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 we've turned down a lot of single casts during COVID, which is nuts. And uh, that would have sold because we, we can put Jack Rose on something and it will sell. Um, but that's not our mission. 
you know, if I if I put my name on it or or Jack Rose's name on it or uh, share it with a you know, I want it to be just as good as you know. If I if I help someone else pick barrels, you know, and I've you know, I, I just want it to be the best expression of a distillery, what a distillery can do. So I, I love that answer. I love the focus on the distillery. Are is there a part of your mind where you're thinking? The consumer, are you thinking of the person who comes into Jack Rose, the person that would buy a barrel pick? Are you thinking price point? Are there moments when you've thought, that's a little more than I would want to sell it at, but I think it's worth it, and I think it would still sell? If, it is, if it's an amazing expression, if it, so if it's, if it's a difference between 200 and 250, and I think it's an amazing, absolute expression then we'll pull the trigger simply because we think it is so transcendent that we're like, you know what? I, I know this is, this may be out of balance for what the market would see if it's sitting on a shelf next to three other things from the distillery. Is it worth the extra 50 bucks? Yes. Like, let's face it, an individual cask, I don't care if it's six years old or 30 years old, if it's amazing and you don't think you're ever going to have another opportunity to have a cast of this quality, you will pay that money. Uh-huh. And I want to, the, my only concern is that I can look you in the face and say, I would, you know, this is a must-have. Yeah. Now, there's the, there's the, there's the uh, categories of must-haves that you're like, okay, if it gets offered to me, I'm going to spend the money at. And then there's also the solid drinker. Mm-hmm. We say that a million times. I yeah. say it over and over. This is a solid drinker. So it's $65. It's $85. It's $105. This is a solid drinker. It's, it's, it's got these notes they're there, they're present the whole way through. It's not a thinker, it's not flipping, it's not changing. It's a solid drinker. This is what you should have for $75 or $100, whatever. Um, so categorizing, categorizing whiskey into those categories of being like those transcendent single, single casts or that solid drinker or this is a uh, utilitarian one that is, you know, Evan Williams uh, bottle and bond for 19 bucks. Throw it in an old-fashioned. Throw it in a Sazerac. <laughs> Drink it neat if you want to. Throw it on the rocks on a hot day. Doesn't matter. It is such a solid value that it's got so many uses. You should just have it at your house. You know, and there's plenty of those out there. So you just have to categorize what, and we always say, drink your mood. Your mood. Mm-hmm. So you know, am I into thinking and sitting and enjoying one dram yes. for hours? Yes. Am I, am, I, am I talking with friends and we are just having a great time and this is delicious? And you don't even think about it. You're drinking something so delicious that it's just, it's making you happy. And that is flowing into the conversation and, and stuff. Those kind of solid drinkers. And then there, the, there's those whiskeys where, oh, we're going to be doing a lot of cocktails tonight. Or, you know, I'm just watching a game and I yeah. just want something to sip on. Yeah. You, know, uh, you know, you just have to drink your mood. And your mood may not always be whiskey. We always say that. If you want to have a whiskey cocktail, do that. But, you know, it might be sparkling tonight. And that's why being a well-rounded bar and restaurant is, I'm into cocktails tonight. I'm into sparkling. We have so many people that come in, well, I'm at Jack Rose and I have a whiskey. I was like, well, are you in the mood for whiskey? If you're in the, at all, then I'll take you on a journey. If you're not, why not get a great beer? You know, there's plenty of great beers out there. You know, we don't want you, we want you to have the best experience first. And if that involves whiskey, then this is the place for it. And if it doesn't involve whiskey, this is the place for it. So... That is, that's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Um, I have to say, you and I have been enjoying the Kilhoman uh, Jack Rose pick of the, the lightly peated and ex-bourbon. 
it continues to be so wonderful. Thanks yeah. so much for pouring it. And then during this interview, you went away and you got the Linkwood Octave that you just picked up a bottle, a couple of bottles yeah. of uh, on a shelf at a store that will remain unnamed. <laughs> it's phenomenal. It's, yeah. it's gingerbread in a glass. Yeah. It's from the Duncan Taylor Octave series. Yeah. And... Thank you so much for pouring it and, yeah. and even, I think, opening the bottle for it. Right? Yeah, I can see why this is one of Chris's nostalgic drams oh, for him. Hell yeah. You know, getting into, oh. you know, starting to work here, getting to run the ladder and pull down whatever, you know, and try and educate. And, and this one holds a, a special place in his heart. And now that I drink it, you know, I'm just like, oh, wow, because this was a forgotten dram to me. Like I said, I, the, Oct the, the uh, Duncan Taylor Octave Cragamore mm. was the one that was front and center for us because it was such a fantastic value when it came out, to be able to offer it to customers, we were pumping it out like crazy, especially you know, hitting that sherried cash strength. You know, here it is, a sherried cash strength dram that's amazing, that's cheaper than all the OBs that are sherried, and you're just like, it won the day. But this, this snuck in, you know, and this was uh, completely different. So uh, I'm on the hunt for more of these. <laughs> Uh, when will this? When will you air this? Um, and uh, maybe, maybe four weeks, maybe six. Oh, so I've got four weeks to hunt every auction <laughs> before this gets out here. Well, we also haven't given a lot of details attached to this, ah, just true. so that you're not competing too much. But let me say cheers to you, Bill, and Thanks. cheers to Jack Rose. There are a few things I want to say. Firstly, Bill. Thank you so much for giving all the time you did to Jason. We all know you're a busy guy, and the fact that you could have kept on going, uh, <laughs> it, it, mean, it means a lot. And, and the fact that it was obvious there's a part two in our future, right? So I'm, I am looking forward to that, and hopefully for part two, I can come and join you guys because I'd love to, to have that three-way conversation. But I need to say something to you, Jason. You texted me sometime earlier last week, and uh, and I told you, you know, I'm going. I'm. It was on Sunday. I said I'm. I'm heading over to Dr. Matt Lauren's house. He has this phage festival he's doing, right? And we were we were calling in James Wills to to do a spiel on Kilhoman. Susanna Skyver Barton was there. We were interviewing him. Like there was a whole thing going on. It was like whiskey life returning to normal again. I said, I'm not looking forward to this drive into Long Island, mostly because I driving in Long Island's a goddamn nightmare. But you had said, and, and this was this was very good advice from you, you'd said, could you listen to the Bill Thomas audio? And I said, Man, that is such a great idea. I got into my car, I forgot to put the audio on my device, and I never got to listen to it. But but uh, after no, I <laughs> nothing honors a guy like telling him you didn't do the thing he'd asked you to do. Perfection, I'm, thank you. I'm nothing if I'm not honest, Jason. Thank you. But what I did was uh, I got home maybe around eight o'clock or so, eight thirty. Um, it's around bedtime, and I said, you know what? Instead of watching some TV, I'm going to listen to that conversation because I wanted to listen to it before you and I recorded today. Mm -hmm. And. I'm going to be very honest here, Jason. That conversation you had with Bill was some of the best interviewing 
I have ever heard, and that includes conversations with Terry Gross and her guests and mm, wow. some of the best TV personalities and their guests. How you were able to take it from a let's get to know Bill and what was life like in D.C. during the 80s and, and the 90s and into the 2000s and how did it shape you to shape your decisions to do everything that you're doing? It was so well constructed and you have something that I don't have and I'm really jealous. You're such an amazing active listener. And, and I'm not that I, I do my best, but you know me, I'm like, Ooh, shiny quarter. There's a seagull, a uh, squirrel. I, just so the listeners are aware, I, I haven't told you any of this. You beforehand. haven't. That's why I'm laughing to deflect. from. Um, but I have to say it, it is up there with some of the best interviews I've heard in my life. I just really no, think that's, it's phenomenal. Thank you ever so much. That's, that's incredibly kind. As, as soon as you throw in Terry Gross from NPR, holy shitballs. Like that's uh, oof, I, I that's think high praise. I, I would that's just, a bit much. I would imagine that there's other listeners who would say the same. I mean, it really was a remarkable conversation. I was able to, to learn things about Bill that I would never have thought to ask, and I would never have connected the dots in the way that you were able to connect them. Well, thank you. That really does mean the world to me. The the reason I was laughing at the active listener part is because if you could see inside my brain when any interview is going on, I'm, I'm definitely listening to the person, but I'm also almost taking notes hmm. on what has been said, what I've already asked, what I'd like to ask going forward. There's a lot of plate spinning going on in my head and I don't always feel like I'm listening as actively as I as I would be if we were just just chilling. Mm. And so the the fact that you make the comment that you that you do really means a lot to me because I don't feel like I'm pulling it off as successfully as you just identified. Oh, so wow. thank you very yeah, much. You, you, you would not have known. It's obvious that you're thinking about things. I mean, there's no doubt about it. You're, mm-hmm. you're receiving the information. You're thinking about it. You're forming questions. And maybe, maybe questions get altered by the end of the, you know, the previous answer to your previous question. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. anyway, whatever, whatever it is, job well done. Job well done. All right, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The, the other thing that if, if you think about the training where I used to be the student listening to the philosophy professor trying to keep all things in front of me. And I, I tomorrow my wife makes fun of me all the time because I, I took no notes. I just would attend a lecture. I would listen. I would pay very close attention mm-hmm. and I would try and internalize what was being said. Then as a professor, mm-hmm. and people say to me all the time, do, do you miss the classroom? I miss interacting with students. I, I don't miss grading. I don't miss department meetings. I, I don't miss the headaches that administration passes down on faculty. But I miss being in the room mm. with 18 to 22-year-olds, listening to their ideas, engaging with them, trying to listen to what they're saying and trying to shape it 
sometimes polish it to make it something even better mm -hmm. that they can think or say or share. And so in an interview, I'm obviously not trying to reshape what the person is saying, but I'm listening to them intently and thinking about how that informs everything else yeah, sure. that's going on within yeah. the interview. And so when you, you know, I, I really do take it as, as a compliment when you talk about active listening. I have spent my life since I was about 18 years old working on active listening. <laughs> and my wife would say, I've got a long way to go. I remain a student in a lot of ways. But but I, I greatly appreciate yeah. that you that you see it and recognize it. I, I'm gonna say one more thing, only because I've I've been trying to make sense of another comment for a few years since it was made. And maybe you'll remember who made it. Hmm. We had a listener write in to say they considered Howard Stern to be an incredibly good interviewer yes. because he gets people to reveal things about themselves that they wouldn't ordinarily do. And that person who wrote in said, and I I don't believe my own press, I'm just quoting, partly because of what you've said and partly yeah. because of what I've been trying to make sense of for years, they said they thought of me as an interviewer every bit as good as Howard Stern. Yeah. And I don't listen to Howard Stern. That, that really didn't mean anything to me. So when you said Terry Gross... Yeah. I'm kind of blown away in this moment when I'm like, <laughs> oh, that that means that. And I understood the person talking about Howard Stern to be making a compliment of the highest order. Oh, yeah. Even if it wasn't one that I could necessarily access. Uh, I remember the comment. Part of me wants to I want to, to say it was a Ben Homan or a, or a balancer. Or a Tim, I want to say Tim Musha. I want to say oh, Tim I didn't, Musha. I didn't, I didn't think it was a Tim Musha comment. And anyway, anyway, I, I do. Anyway, I anyway. do remember that comment being made, and I agree with it. Uh, and the, and the only thing that I will add is, if you ever can go back and and find some Stern archive interviews, it's well worth your time. He's an excellent interviewer. He's not just a. Uh, shock cock jock he you know he's 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 an excellent interviewer and that's what you said when that comment yeah. came in yep. and I really only know him as the shock jock kind of guy yeah. and so I was kind of like I don't think I'd see that in myself but and then here, here's the final final thing and then we'll go into a quick news segment what I said a moment ago there about missing the students being yeah. in the classroom listening to the students I always enjoyed them mm -hmm. And when conducting interviews, you and I doing it together, me doing it solo, whatever the shape of it is, I really enjoy people. And I really enjoy listening to people. Mm -hmm. And I and I'm nosy, right? I love <laughs> learning more about people. And it's so great when you walk in and you say, I'd love to interview you for the podcast One Nation Under Whiskey, people will tell you things. You can just ask them things and they'll tell you. Yeah. Like it it's very powerful and uh, and i and i love it when people we just had this in talking to greg the other week when he talked about being in glasgow and getting that bottle of the glenlivet mm -hmm. and it being so special and it living on a even when he came back to america it lived you know on a shelf on top of his fridge right and he was saving it for a special occasion yeah like 
just opening that door into one small part of someone's life mm-hmm. is so incredibly powerful. And in hearing it, I'm always thinking, okay, where do we go next? What, what, where's, where's the next place I can be nosy, right? Yeah, well, I, I, think, it's, I think it's a, a very good disarming way to get into a conversation, right? Obviously, we're curious about all the guests that we have. Uh, people like to talk about themselves and what they've done, and I, th- I think that's a good way to get in there and, and really open them up. And and yeah, just just job well done, sir. Can I add one more thing? Uh, the last one was meant to be the one thing you were adding, but you know, go ahead. I'm, I'm feeling generous. <laughs> I knew you were going to say yes, um, you and know I didn't what? even I take use it all my... back. <laughs> I didn't even pull my ace in the hole, which is it's about you. As soon as I say that, I know I'm going to get to add it. <laughs> yeah, please, hold on. Undivided attention. <laughs> yeah, that, that ace, I was just keeping up this sleeve over here. Um, so, I, so I've now done a, a Bill Thomas by myself. I ended up doing the Greg Swartz by myself mm. when you got called away uh, to, to something on the, the, the home front. You and I have done so many interviews as a pair Mm. that I know there are times in interviews when I can take a little break from the plate spinning and I can let you spin some plates Mm. and in sitting with Greg and sitting with Bill in my mind I told you this over text in my mind I'm asking myself what would Josh be asking here Mm. because there are plenty of times when you ask a question when I go I hadn't even thought to ask that (laughs) yeah that's that is the question in this moment. Mm, mm. And so I I do try to represent you when I'm by myself. I do ask myself, it's one of the many plates that's being spun. What's Josh going to be wanting to know? And, and I told you this over text for the One Nation Under Whiskey listeners going to be waiting yes. yeah. for us to ask as well. And that's another one of the plates that's getting spun. So so even though I've done these solo, you have very much been, if not in the room, in my head uh, and been one of my plates being spun. So hopefully my goal is to do you proud when I'm conducting these solo as well. Well, I definitely felt dizzy the day that you conducted the interview. So uh, plate spun quite well. I would say I spun you around right round, baby, baby right, right round. round. Like, like a, record, a record, you could say. Round, 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 round. Right, round, right, round. <laughs> <laughs> okay, enough of this. Gosh. So, uh, so listen, I don't think that we have any pressing news. Please correct me if I'm wrong. There's nothing pressing, but there's definitely updates. All right, let's call the paper boy. I'm going to let you update. Oh, it's not. But just make sure he doesn't shout, because I don't want too much attention, just a little bit of attention. I'm not going to lie to you. He, he, has, he has one volume. He's just shouty, this boy. He's shouty. He's shouty. Okay, get your shout on, but don't, don't draw too much attention to us. All right. Come on, Jimmy. Extra, extra. Read all about it. Life story of Playboy Penny. Extra, extra. Extra, extra. Read all about it. Me and that Playboy in trouble. As I was saying before, that little shouty bastard got all up in my grill. <laughs> just some updates. Okay. Retail release number seven is in the United States and is on its way to distributors, hopefully should be appearing on retail shelves. Mm -hmm. Our social media is blowing up 
with images, comments, responses to what is happening with release number seven, the excitement around it is palpable. Mm. And that has me, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I assume you, very happy, very excited. I will allow you to put those words in my mouth because they were already there. (laughs) So. (laughs) So it's off to a great start. The response, I, I did lead the podcast with it, but the response around the Stones of Stenness release was brilliant. Mm. Absolutely brilliant. And and selling that out in 90 minutes, as always, remains incredibly exciting for us. The support from the nation amazing, just means the world to yeah. us. And that is so very, very cool. The third rest of the world retail release has been selected bottling has been requested that should be pressing ahead i'm being very careful to not attach months or dates or anything know that it is very much in progress that's really exciting and then as again we said earlier in this podcast always looking six months out Retail release for the United States, number eight, has been selected. Mm-hmm. We're a little earlier on in there, but progress is being made. And as we're talking about releases, our good friends even farther north than where you're sitting in Connecticut, Joshua, mm-hmm. our friendly Canadians have got a release happening later. This year. Yes. A lot of product is on a slow boat to Canada. (laughs) Can I add a bit of news? Nothing would make me happier. We have collaborated once again with um, Aganorsa Leaf on a cigar project. So about a year and a half ago, we sent one of our rye casks uh, to them. And and they created a cigar that had a Connecticut wrapper and Nicaraguan fill, um, and then matured the cigars in that rye cask. And to my knowledge, I can't think of any other cigar that's had a rye cask uh, finish. But that that sold out in in just a couple of days. Come July twenty six, we'll have a new cigar out. We sent a Tennessee bourbon cask to Aganor Salif and they created new cigars same size as before this robusto size but they did a box press of it so that's mm. going to change that's going to change the pull on it it's going to change the overall uh, flavor profile and the feel of the cigar and, and Yoni Miller who's our in-house cigars are is just over the moon with this so the collaboration wasn't just a two-way between us and Aganorsa Leaf. It was also with twoguyscigars.com out of Avenue, New Hampshire. And is when you said, just to the north of me, that reminded me, wait a second, <laughs> New Hampshire is to the north of me. I need to bring up this news. Um, so it's being sold exclusively through Two Guys Cigars. It's going to happen on July 26th. You can check out their website, sign up for their newsletter, and you'll get some more information on it. Single Cast Nation members will have uh, it advanced access to these cigars. There's going to be a lot, right? We made 
2,000 sticks. So that's 200 boxes of 10 cigars. So there's a good amount available. We're giving our Single Cast Nation members a two-hour um, lead. And so if you're a Nation member, awesome. we will be emailing you that information uh, once we have it. We don't have the URL yet. If you're not yet a Nation member and you are a cigar smoker, please go to singlecastnation.com. Sign up for a free membership. It is free. Just your name, your email, boom, you're in. We will email you the information once it comes. Are the cigars just shipping within the United States? I don't really know regulations around cigars. Jeepers creepers. You know, I don't know the regulations around cigars either. Hmm. You, hmm. Well, you know what, Jason? That's an excellent question. I'll find out the information. I'll find out the answer to that and, and see if I can give it to you and to our listeners for the next episode. Awesome. Awesome. If, yeah. if I may ask another question. Yeah, sure. Why not? Was it our 12-year-old Tennessee barrel or our 14-year-old Tennessee barrel that went to them? That is an excellent question. Now, I've been trying to look through my records, and normally I have very good records. I can trace everything back. It may take a while, but normally I have very good <laughs> records. And... Where I am so far in this, uh, in my sleuthing, is that this is that these cigars were matured in a cask that was part of the Pappy Nonsense blend, if you will. Mm -hmm. in, in, blend is a tough word. A marriage of Tennessee bourbon casks from a singular distillery. I think it was. I think it was from that marriage of casks now we also did two store exclusives uh with these tennessee bourbons but as far as my records can tell uh neither of those two casks were were the ones that went to uh agonorsa leaf so i think it was part of the pappy nonsense bottling okie dokie if i can add one more update yeah I stand by everything we said about the Stones of Stainless 17-year-old being every bit as good as the 18-year-old from an Orkney distillery that is not Scapa that uh, was, was releasing some 18-year-olds back in uh, the early 2000s that mm -hmm. were exemplary. Mm -hmm. this, this, this stands up to that. Mm, I love it. <sighs> I love it when we make a statement and then we take a multi-month pause... <laughs> and then we test that statement and we get proven correct. I, I'm on my second pour here. I just popped the, the cork yeah. again there. This is a drinker. And, and if, if you don't have it, I'm sorry. I will not belabor my point. But if you do have it, boy, do you have a little scorcher well, in your collection. I, I know you like it when things get proven. I, I like it when they get proven. But no. No. That's, that's what happens to bread. No, that's proof. It's proof. We don't use that word around here. Listen. Proved. Um, proved. Proved. Do we have any other news? Because if we don't have any other news. I'm racking my brain. I'm racking my brain. I'm racking my brain. We do, of course, have more bottlings coming to Single Cast Nation online. Mm -hmm. U.S. Nation members. The Westland is still in bottling production. Correct. Which... Uh, Fun little wrinkle on that one. The wrinkles have never ended with that one, but the, the magic continues. 
Can't wait to release it. Can't wait to get that onto my desk so I can sit and drink that as well. Gosh, <laughs> that's going to be delicious. And then many, many more coming behind that. Yeah, th- yeah. There's a lot of whiskey to be talking about. Yep, it's all super exciting stuff. I'm. I cannot wait to get my Orkney, and in those two Westlands, that that cast number four thirty seven that peated. Uh, I it still may be the best Westland I've ever had, and and I'm looking forward to get my bottle to see if I'm proven correct. Um. <laughs> I went on the muscatel, to be honest, but here we go. <laughs> and, it's, and it's the pita that was distilled on my birthday. And so, know, right? but gosh, that Westland and muscatel, mm, special know, stuff. Anywho, moving right along. We received an email from, uh, from Single Cast Nation member and listener Ben Homan, and I wanted to, to bring it to your attention and to the attention of our listeners. Mind okay. if I do that? I would love you to. It gives me a chance to sit and sip on my whiskey. I have to... Oh, my gosh. You know you're getting old when. Oof. That was me increasing the size. it? I just need to make this a little bigger. Um, <laughs> so, for, again, from Ben Homan. Uh, email came in on July 2nd, just two days before America's birthday. And the subject is, you asked for emails... So here it is. Right. And so that sounds like he's throwing down the gauntlet. This is this is him dropping mics. Um, oh. Oh, like you that. asks for a competition where we hunt humans. Well, here it is, and you're one of them. <laughs> Hello, J J J, and now E, and then he Ooh. puts in parentheses. You ready for this? Because he's so good. <laughs> he puts in parentheses. Joshua goes first in my mind because I know him so well. Sorry, everyone else. <laughs> and I'll allow it. <laughs> just so our listeners are aware, uh, Ben is not only a single cast nation member, he's not only a One Nation Under Whiskey listener, but he's also a friend and he's part of my local whiskey group, him and his dad, Mark Homan. So, two, two really uh, dear people to me. So, He goes on with his email and says, Now that some of the white whales you wanted to bottle as a company have been achieved, what distillery is now high on the list as a must-bottle? Secondly, with the amazing reception of your blends that have been released, any plans of doing another? (laughs) Or maybe even being able to craft your own exclusive blend? And then parenthetical comment, if this happens, please remember who suggested it so I get first dibs. And it just says cheers. That's a short email with a lot to unpack. A lot to unpack. <sighs> so what, what, should we start with the first one? White Whales? White Whales, right? We, we did Imperial. We did a, an 80s Bowmore. Right? We've, we've bottled... We've never bottled a Highland Park, but we've bottled... Orkney, and I'm just using names. I'm just using words so people are, are, are aware here. You're not connecting any dots. I'm not connecting at dots at all. So, what, what, what yeah. about let, let's start with you? You know the answer to this for me. And it, and it might surprise some of our listeners. I am desperate, desperate, desperate. I am actively searching out mm-hmm. Jura. 
I was expecting that answer from you, and and it's a it's a controversial. <laughs> you're no less disappointed. <laughs> I'm not less disappointed because because it, it, it's in a way a controversial thing because I there are people who are Jura fetishists like that is their jam, and I get that. Power but, to them, right? And power to them. They know what they love, and that's fantastic. And and I think the same could be held true for McAllen drinkers and for Glen Rothis drinkers, right? They have they know what they like, and that's what they go for. But Jura has never been a distillery that has has really fit with our with our palates. And so, what is the? Are you just looking for a Jura? And so, this is a two part question for you. Are you just looking for a Jura? That changes your mind about Jura, but still re- retains the Jura DNA, or are you just hoping for something? I don't care what it is, just as long as it's a good whiskey, even if it doesn't resemble what you think of when it comes to Jura. No, it's definitely the first part of that, because I I agree with you. There are people who, who love Jura, and... And I don't, and you don't, and many, 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 many people we speak to don't. But it's a Scottish single malt distillery, the only one on its island Mm -hmm. just north of Isla. There has to be something there. They have to be doing something. For years, I wrote off Glen Scotia. Now, I would. Love to get a Glen Scotia right. that, bottled a for the company. Ex- that's Gosh, a great example. Great right? example. Yeah. For years, I avoided Scapa. Yeah. And then I started having some good OB Scapa. I haven't really explored much IB independently bottled Scapa, and and I would love to get a Scapa bottled for mm-hmm. the nation as well. Mm-hmm. But Jura remains a distillery that I'm not buying, that I'm not drinking, that I'm not enjoying when I find it and I experience it or someone... And, and that's another thing. Nobody shares it, right? Nobody says, oh, i got a good Jura. i got to pour this for you, <laughs> right? Yeah. And it's... I, I just... I want to I wanna unlock the mystery that is mm-hmm. Jura mm-hmm. with the other aspect of that being if you see Jura in single-cast nation livery... You know you can buy it. You know you'll enjoy it. But I love your additional part there, which was somehow have the Jura stamp on it, the Jura style on it, but be a really good whiskey that is worth sharing. I just think that whole mystery is fascinating and worth unlocking. Yeah, you know, the first Jura that I've had where I said... My gosh, this is excellent. No, even better. This is phenomenal. Was a 1976 single cask bottled by Jura. um, And Bill Myers had it in in his basement. He poured it for me. And I was was floored by it. I just thought it was excellent. But it didn't taste like the Jura profile, right? It didn't taste like Jura. It could have been anyone's phenomenal whiskey. And that, to me, is the trouble with the 200th anniversary yeah. Jura yeah. that I think was maybe 19, 20 years old yeah. with uh, Gonzalez Baez oh, sharing yeah, yeah, maturation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's that stonking good whiskey. Would you identify it as Jura is another question. I will say, however, though, our friends at Claxton's 
bottled, I think it was a seven-year in Madeira, and you, me, and Jess, our dear Jess, were at uh, David Sturk's house <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and tasting mm-hmm. that over some pizza. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a remarkable little Jura, and it tasted like Jura. Let me pause you there, Joshua. I've got a FedEx delivery that i got to go get. <laughs> Sorry to pause you there, but... That's okay. Um, that was cask samples being delivered. <laughs> oh, we like cask samples. Yes, yes, we do. And as we know, they don't die in uh, Bridgewater, Virginia. So so let's move on. Um, yeah, so... <laughs> uh, yeah, right. And, and so I think that Claxton's But I remember one, that Jura yeah, well. right. The, and, and, and so that shows you... And it, and it did have the Jura DNA. There was You drank that and you say, this is Jura but it worked for our palates. And so they produce a ton of spirit that a lot of people are drinking. It was unusual for us, given our palates, to find one that fit. So it it leads me to believe that others do exist out there. So so I'm with you here. But but take a look at that, right? Madeira, probably a Madeira finish. Mm -hmm. The Gonzalez Baez, potentially a Gonzalez Baez finish. Mm. The 76 you're talking about could have been anybody's 76 whiskey, right? Didn't necessarily have the Jura DNA going on in it. What's one of the things you and I are often most proud of are those distilleries we release in ex-bourbon mm. where that that distillery character can really come through. Yeah. And so... Gosh, I'm, I'm even going to take this up a notch and say White Whale is Jura in ex-bourbon that we stand behind. Yeah. Yep. There you go. That's that's a White Whale right there. Holy crap. <laughs> <sighs> and, and then just because it's really easy and obvious, Springbank. Moving on to you. <laughs> what's, what's yours? <laughs> yeah, right. And, and that's what I was going to well, say. And let me say. Yeah, go ahead. And to be clear, Springbank, that's not $1,000 a bottle. That's the goal. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and, and, that's, and that's difficult given that the current prices, the current pricing structure is terrible. So when you see a bottle of Spring Bank that's $900, $1,000, a bit more than that, no one's, no one's tearing the ass out of the pricing. That's just the price they paid for the cask. And they're going to make that decision and they're going to sell it and, and people will buy it. We've been offered spring banks at those prices, and we've decided to say no because we just didn't want to charge that price for a spring bank if we did a springer. Well, and, and to be quite honest with Ben here, we've talked over the years about white whales and distilleries that we'd love to get bottled. I think with the current climate in the industry, those white whales have now become aged whiskey at reasonable prices Mm. and so i'm less thinking what distillery do i want to bottle and instead what prices do we want to bottle within and that's i think where the the woodcut series has come in yeah where over the course of four annual releases 
we're trying to operate within a $395 price point. Yeah. And and who know who knew when we started that woodcut series that we'd have tariffs, <laughs> that we'd have a global pandemic, that we'd have the rise of the investment market. Mm-hmm subcategory within whiskey blowing prices out the water mm-hmm. and we talk about how the industry changes by decade there's a four bottle annual series that over those four years the industry is almost re- unrecognizable well let's add one other element to that and that is the the weakening of the dollar Right, the dollar is getting mm-hmm. weak again. Mm-hmm. There was a point when against ex- Brexit, against Brexit, right? There was a point where you know when we first started the company, the exchange rate was one point seven eight, meaning for every pound we had to spend a dollar seventy eight, and then it went as low as one point one eight, and that felt like magic. And now we're up to like one point four two, so it's going back, and it's oh boy, it doesn't make life easy. Um, but yeah. So, so Springbank is an obvious one, but we're gonna we're gonna approach that differently if we ever get access to some again, um, from a from a yeah. p- bottle pricing standpoint, right? Um, m- one of my white whales, aside from Springbank, <laughs> is Cragenmore. I mm-hmm. really, yep. really want to bottle a Crag and more. Agreed. Um, the, you know, one of the things that drew me to to Crag and more years ago, and and it's something we talk about all the time, is the texture. It is such a richly textured whiskey. And when we were at the distillery in 2014, and our friend Donald Coville had given us some new make to taste, it was so rich and heavy and meaty. But then you let it mature for 12 years, 15 years, 18 years, and all of the fruit comes out and, and the, there's a the honey, the honey, and it's just such a glorious whiskey. And it's such a classic name, right? I, you know, some, for the most part, I tend not to be fussed about names, but I think Cragenmore is such a strong name and it's one of those things like what's your what's your pride piece what's your status bottling for me bottling a Cragenmore is a status bottling oh without any shadow of a doubt yeah. i would throw talisker in there yeah right, yeah, right. Part, yeah. And, and i have literally no idea how we would even go about sourcing a talisker but gosh i would love to bottle <laughs> a talisker and again at the right price yep. as i'm as i'm sitting here thinking and listening to you Glenfiddich, and I'm and I'm gonna give the game away here right. because at auction it has now reached a price that I won't oh, go you're to. Good. You're gonna give this one away? Oh, because it's reached a price that you won't go to. I am gonna give this away. Yeah, okay, go I'm ahead. gonna give away this little one, <laughs> but I would love to bottle a Glenfiddich, which is a statement I never thought I would ever say. But look at the Glenfiddich that Jess and Sweet Scott, Chris mm-hmm. Hallstrom poured for us in 2017 at our Mullivo tasting with our great Isla Swim tour mm-hmm, group. Mm-hmm. That was a peated Glenfiddich 
bottled for the spirit of Speyside Festival. Mm-hmm. The way I'm talking, you'd think I just bought a half dozen of these and I'm trying to bump up the price at auction. I literally don't own one and I desperately want to, uh-huh. but you know, they're too much for me now. That was poured blind and everybody in the group who are all Isla heads mm-hmm. standing, no relation to the heads family of Isla, just to be clear, <laughs> uh, yeah. standing on the Mull of O on the south west tip of the east side of Isla all fucking loved it loved it loved it loved it and then Jess and Sweets got revealed oh yeah that's a Peter Glenfiddich and we all went yes please yes please I'll take some thank it was, you it wasn't just peated it was peated and heavily sherried as well oh lord right? it lordy, was lordy. it was just it was it was phenomenal coming and going. It was just a wonderful whiskey. And and I don't know if you, I don't think you just said this because I was trying to listen actively. Um, but, <laughs> that, that sounds like the opposite of active listening. <laughs> uh, I try to be funny every now and again. And so that along with, one of the best long grows I've ever had was was poured and some old blends, but everything was poured blindly. And it wasn't until the pours were revealed and I went back to that Glenfiddich that I actually tasted the Glenfiddich DNA even behind mm. the peat. Mm. And I thought that that was a really remarkable thing, right? If you're, do, if you're tasting mm. it blindly, you taste peat, you'd never go there. But once you have a little bit of information... If you know Glenfiddich, you can say, oh, all right. Okay, yeah, it is there. And that's Jess's thing where she's a Glenfiddich lover. Mm-hmm. And that's that. That's always sounded peculiar to me just because of my own journey. But then you, know, you taste that one particular release and you go, oh, yeah. Or, or I've been in places where the Glenfiddich brand ambassador has poured single cask samples. Yeah. And you go, this, this is Glenfiddich? Like, yeah. oh, there's a reason they got as big as Coca-Cola. Right? <laughs> yeah, like, there's right. a reason. This is really good. But their standard releases, just like we said with the Jura uh, earlier, just haven't worked for my palate. Just don't fit my palate. The strength, the chill filtering. But they're making good liquid. There's no doubt about it. There are single casts in there that are delicious. I'll, I'll add another example. Oh. The Glenlivet, right? Just to bring it back to our friend Greg. That, that Glenlivet, Bikram at Norfolk Wine and Spirits just put out a signatory Glenlivet mm-hmm. that is absolutely brilliant. Yep. And I've, I've been buying it in multiple places. Yep. yep. Yeah, that, that was... A, By that, that, I mean yeah. from Bikram and at auction. <laughs> that, that, was, <laughs> that was a remarkable one. And, and, and you can find Glenlivet independently bottled. Glenfiddich, not so much. Can I give you one last one? Yes. In my opinion, uh, one of the best OB bottlings that was, that, that was made available, sadly now gone, or, or, or the cask type has changed, but reliably excellent OB was the Balveni 15-year-old single barrel, when it, when it was a bourbon barrel, first fill bourbon. And each one was just as good, if not better, than the next. And boy, what I would give to bottle a Balveni of that caliber. 
but Balvenie oh, don't don't sell, right? You know, you could do a burn side, but then that's teaspooned. But yeah, you know, I wink, I, wink. Um, but but yeah, Balvenie would be way up there. And as I'm saying this, I think about your comment about the Cragmore being so honeyed. Balvenie is very honeyed, right? I'm, I'm mm. discovering my palate as I'm talking aloud. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I will say just to to if not end the segment, to transition within this segment. Well, yeah, because we have another uh, question to answer. From Ben. From Ben, yeah. Is we just secured a a little distillery cask in the United Kingdom thanks to the diligence of Jess that you, you never forget where you were when you had your first one. You never forget where you were when you had your first one. And holy crap, this was a distillery that we've been desperate to bottle from since the beginning. And the fact that we have this cask, oh, oh, I'm so excited. What a tease. What a tease. I will say no more. Part two. Part two. So what is, what's the other part of his question? Let's go back the, the to The blend. The success of blends. Are, we mentioned in the news segment about our friends in Canada. They, God bless them, are bringing in a heavily sherried, heavily alcoholed, <laughs> blended malt that is going to turn heads across Canada. Mm-hmm. It is is going to do so well for them. You know, Edrington distillate, heavily sherried with just a little bit of peat mm-hmm. and a good ABV. Oh, you know. Yeah. Jason's on the floor convulsing. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a, that's a remarkable one. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited for that to be in Canada. I'm, I'm jealous of our neighbors to the north um because yeah but let's transition really quickly to to ben's further question of of a proprietary blend would you ever want to do that would you ever want to have like a i mean because of my i've said it done so sorry what was your question would i ever want to would you would you ever want to have a proprietary Blend. I mean, obviously, I guess we couldn't call it single cast nation if it had some sort of continuity to it. Does that does that even tickle your fancy? We haven't really talked about it. I mean, we've touched on it here and there, but we've never gone into much depth. Given my love and adoration for Glasgow Blend, mm. uh, there's a little there's a little something there but it's not to the forefront of my mind. I would rather have a proprietary single malt that we put out. I like that idea. Jason, Johnston, Yellen, Jason, three names. We should get in the time machine, go back to 2017 and start discussing this because it might take five years to come to market. (laughs) My gosh, Ben. Thank you so much for your questions. Hopefully, we've we've answered them to your satisfaction. If did you say satisfaction? 
Yeah, I was satisfaction. I was thinking like of uh, I was I was I was uh, calling my inner David Lee Roth, who all he would say sassified. I was like that <laughs> sassified. I didn't know that about David Lee Roth. Yeah. Oh, come on. Um, yeah. <laughs> Oh, come on, like it's obvious. <laughs> Is it in his biography or something? Have I missed a trick here? Um, so listen, uh, there's a, there's one other thing that I want to bring up before we head out of here, because we do have to head out of here. But if yes, if you, not you, Jason, but if, if you, the listener, are interested in sending a question our way, you could do what Ben did. Email us, questions at onenationunderwhiskey.com. You could also uh, send us messages through our Instagram at One Nation Under Whiskey. You could reach out to us by Facebook. Just go to the Facebook search bar, look for One Nation Under Whiskey. You can message us that way. And if you enjoy the Twitters, we are at One Nation Whiskey, and uh, and you can reach out to us there. And of course, we never spell whiskey with the e. So if you want to reach out to us, just make sure you spell it without the e, like the vast majority of the world do. All of that is true. Now, we received a fun little comment on our on Apple Podcasts, and I wanted to read that because I, th- I thought, we, well, you know what? We, we promised our listeners anytime a new comment came in, we would read it on the, uh, on the podcast. So, <laughs> And goodness knows, when we make promises, boy, do we keep them. Boy, do we keep them. So this comment... All the people, all the listeners... Waiting on a worm tub episode are rolling their eyes right now. Oh, god damn it, Jason. You had to bring up worm tubs. <laughs> well, you brought up the Craggamore earlier and how it was heavy and meaty, and it got me thinking. So, <laughs> so this comment came in July 1, and it was written by Reaper73, R E E P E R 73. And the title of it, it says, So Great. And he, he or she gave five stars. Thank and you. And it says, This podcast is fantastic. Uh, <laughs> uh, you had me at podcast. <laughs> he'll have you again because he says, Jason and Joshua. See how he did this? See what he did oh. there? Or she? I, I should see what this person did there. Jason and Joshua. That's because, that's because they know Jason better. Are quoting bo- Ben Holman. Can I read this goddamn comment? I'm afraid you're going to interrupt. Should I pour it. another whiskey? Oh goddamn it! Can I go? Please. Okay. Jason. Right <laughs> <laughs> Zip. Zip it. Zip it. Jason and Joshua are both hysterically entertaining and extremely knowledgeable whiskey geeks. They get amazing guests and give great interviews. In one word, this show is dot, 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 smooth. One exclamation point. I always love it when someone's listened to more than one episode and has pulled together a few in-house jokes. That's nice. That's real nice. Brilliant. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think they proved their point. Yeah. Yeah. They showed us the proof, which is great. Uh, Reaper73, thank you so much for your, 
for your comment. We really appreciate that. And, and anyone else, if you want to leave a little comment in Apple Podcasts, give us your, your four or five stars. We would love that. Leave a comment. We'll read it on the podcast. If you have a rating that is one or two stars and you have a problem with us, you can always email us. Questions at OneNationUnderWhiskey.com. That's, that's always best. If you've made it to this part in the podcast, <laughs> that, that you have hated that much. Like, the whole time maybe... this person's fuming. Fuming. Oh, you know what? Oh, I can just email them and tell them how much I hate them. All right, here we go. do 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 <laughs> Yeah, if, if I could actually just ask, here we are in, right. in the middle of July. Mm -hmm. If you've been meaning to tell a friend about this podcast, mm. could you go ahead and do it now? And just say, hey, subscribe. Give this a listen. You'll love it. They are smooth. Can I tell you, uh, there have been a few people who've reached out to us and said, I've suggested your podcast to friends who are not whiskey lovers because I just enjoy the conversation and that you know and when we when we set out to do this obviously we wanted a uh, an industry insiders podcast we wanted it to be fun we wanted it to be a peek behind the curtain but we also wanted it to have this sort of car talk feel to it where anyone can listen to it whether you're into the whiskey or not and, and it's been nice to hear that. Well, God knows we laugh at our own jokes just as much as they did. <laughs> yes, so yes. I feel like we're off to a good start. <laughs> We've had five years of huffing our own farts. I think we have, I think we have been successful in what we set out to achieve. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep. Uh, don't drive like my business partner. Don't drink like my business partner. <laughs> yes. Uh, listen responsibly. Um, so, do you have anything to add before we say adieu to our listeners? I don't, actually. I, I moved off my recording screen there to answer some texts from my kid. And so I, I'm just jumping back in to make sure this has been recording all the good stuff. And I'm pleased to say it has. Oh, thank so. God. Thank fuck. Okay, good. Yes. Let me add this. Go ahead. If you've made it this far in this episode, <laughs> uh -huh. and... You were listening to the Greg Swartz episode, mm -hmm. thinking, this is good. Doesn't sound up to the usual standards that these chaps put out. And for that, I, I commend Joshua. We had a recording on Jason's End <laughs> where on my recording software, I had a metronome running for an hour and a half. And I sent that file to Joshua and said, oh, there is my offering for this podcast. And Joshua did everything in his power to remove the metronome without us having to find the time to re-record the episode, mm -hmm. which we would have done. But boy, is that a massive, massive time sink in the schedule. Mm -hmm. And so... No one has actually reached out to say anything sound any different. Our dear Jess, who is very honest, and I, you know, you mentioned earlier, Joshua, you're nothing if not honest. Mm -hmm. Our dear Jess is many, many things and also very honest. And she said, it sounded a little different. 
but only, and here, here's the shit sandwich, the compliment shit sandwich, it only sounded a little bit different because I'm so used to the high production values ah. that you chaps put out. Huh. So if anyone else was thinking it but didn't write in to yeah. comment, yep, there you go. I just wanted to throw myself under the bus and give you, Joshua, a commendation for taking care of something that I screwed up on my end and we didn't have to go back and re-record. You just did a bit of digital jiggery-pokery. You know, I, I was going to let this episode go by without even bringing that up, but man, did you screw the pooch and did you give me a lot of work. Um, but you're welcome. That's what I texted you. <laughs> yeah, that is exactly, exactly what you texted me, which was not the answer I wanted at that time. But but I, you know, ret- uh, hindsight being twenty twenty, it, it was the answer I needed. So <laughs> not all heroes wear cape, Joshua. Uh, Jason, it has been really real. It has been the realest of the real experiences. Mm-hmm. And uh, in, until next time, we'll we'll see. Our, I'll see you, and we'll we'll be talking with our listeners a week uh, from this Wednesday on an extra extra. It's all about whiskey episode, and then after that, we we really have a wonderful conversation coming up uh, with Bruce Russell from Wild Turkey. So that that's going to be a really fun listen for all you uh, bourbon fans out there. So. Until then, I bid you adieu, Jason. I bid, and that's a Jew. Not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not bidding Jewish people, right? I can say this joke as as a Jewish person myself, but you, Jason, cannot only being married to a Jewish person. Um, can you do Those that? Those pyramids aren't going to build themselves. <laughs> Oh, my God. Ten plagues upon you, Jason. Accepted. Actually, I'll go to 11. (laughs) 11? 11? 11! Freedom! Freedom!